This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. Sheriff, you're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. Welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking queer wolf allegories again. We're talking 90s bangers. And we're talking a lot of mass. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we are all going to be crossing a bridge over to Kakaitis today, everyone, because we are talking boys in the trees. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've, I've actually prepared like a definition of what that is because I okay. wasn't sure people would know. And... <laughs> Oh, boy. Yeah, this film is interesting because it's a lot and also not a lot at the same time. I'm interested to get into it with you. Very simple story. And yeah, this is one. So listeners, let me paint a picture for you because this is one that Joe has had on the schedule. I want to say two, maybe even three years in a row, but we always ended up bumping it or moving it because I was like, no one knows what that movie is. (laughs) Yeah, because it's underseen. Yeah, exactly. So, everyone, welcome to our 2016 entry into the underseen or underrated theme that we're doing this quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to wager that this is on the underseen category. Absolutely. Yeah, I do gather this won't be a hit for everyone because I think for some people it's not quite horrific enough. It's a little bit too long. Uh, maybe it's too foreign for some folks. But <laughs> Maybe it's not queer enough for some. Yeah, there is that as well. But Mm -hmm. I will say that I... I am a big fan of this film, which is why I tried to push for it for so long, just Mm -hmm. because I think if nothing else, it's really gorgeous to look at. 
Oh, I agree. And I do. I did like this film quite a bit. This is my first time viewing it. And, um, you know, we'll go into more detail, obviously, in a bit. But I, I think I think we should probably have some help on this, uh, maybe from an Australian himself. So, mm. all right, everyone. He is the award winning author of such books as House of Size, The Fallen Boys, A Place for Sinners, Where the Dead Go to Die, and his most recent book, Dirty Heads. Please welcome Aaron Dries. G'day, mate. I feel as though I need to kind of ham it up a little bit to some degree. Oh, no. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm here to bring whatever foreignness you need for this podcast. I'm happy to, <laughs> to adequately make up for any lack of queer content this film may be alluding to. I'm here to just give you whatever you need, guys. And it's a pleasure. I'm really happy to be here. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming. We're very happy to have you as well. And of course, to help us with uh, any Australian inside, well, I don't want to say jokes because this isn't really a jokey film, but uh, any inside info you might be able to offer us. But um, yeah, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be your interactive uh, Australian Wikipedia bot for, for, the next, <laughs> for the next little while. <laughs> well, um, I, I guess, Joe, I mean, because you, you are the one who has been pushing for this film so much. What mm-hmm. What is this film to you? Well, it's interesting because I was trying to remember when I first saw this film and gauging by the time that it came out, I remembered seeing it in a different context than I must have because I was definitely living in Toronto. So I wouldn't have seen it in Ottawa in my second run sort of art house movie theater. So I don't remember how this got on my radar. I was probably just looking up queer films or queer horror films. And this is one of the ones that came up that definitely seemed under the radar. Like not a lot of people were talking about it, but especially when I saw the trailer, I thought, oh, this is moody. This could be dark. It could be interesting. And when I finally saw it, it's actually not that, but (laughs) it is, as I mentioned, really beautiful. I really, really enjoy this main actor. And I think what we'll end up having a conversation with Aaron about is that there's a universality to this film, and especially the experience of growing up in a place that you maybe don't feel welcome, feeling like you're an imposter or you're wearing masks. But also, uh, I think that there's a bunch of things that I'm missing that I'm eager to dig into. Well, Aaron, so have you had you seen this film before we asked you on to this episode? Uh, confession, no, I hadn't. I am a terrible Australian. Ooh. You picked the worst. Oh, Australian. it just means you're part of the Commonwealth and you don't value your own art because you're infatuated <laughs> with Hollywood. Yeah, Canadians have the same thing. Yeah, look, uh, look, I'm I'm here to to bring disappointment to to the the entire <laughs> Commonwealth. Please don't tell the Queen, please. <laughs> Trace has no experience with any of this. It's hilarious. I I hadn't seen it. It's something that has been on my radar literally since it came out. And I felt like a a little bit of guilt about never having taken the time to check it out, especially considering Mm -hmm. I've had many friends recommend it to me over the years. But, you know, sometimes you just you need to come to a film when you're ready for it. And and I think the, the invitation to join you guys today was that invitation that I needed. And I really liked it. Uh, It's not without its flaws, but it's somewhat fascinating and very sweet. Very, very sweet. So I'm, I really enjoyed it. Yes, I think the sweetness is definitely what got to me. I mean, again, yeah, Joe had primed me beforehand. He was like, just so you know, it's not going to be super hoary. It's going to be a bit more of a slow. I don't want to say it's a slow burn because I feel like slow burn implies that it's building up to something bombastic. Right. It keeps a steady, like, energy throughout. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's... It's it's kind of charming. It's it is very relatable, and I'm interested to see like how the two of you relate to us compared relate to the film compared to me because 
I mean, it's also a 90s film, right? Like, it's a period piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 1997, baby. And we had actually covered the, uh, the, the director Nicholas Verso short film The Last Time I Saw Richard, which is linked to this film and it's so funny because listen to if y'all listen to our micro queers episode on the short film last year um you can go listen to it now if you haven't joe had clued me into the fact that it was related to this film boys in the trees that he had you know put on our schedule so many times that i had removed <laughs> and then you promptly forgot <laughs> and i probably oh, totally forgot because, <laughs> because last week joe was like oh yeah it's like that short film we covered i was like what are you talking about i don't and what's funny is <laughs> i went back and i rewatched that short film and i Joe, I mean, I remembered pieces of it, mm-hmm. but like, I didn't remember watching it. It was the weirdest, weirdest feeling. But you were trying to explain to me how this film was related to the short film, and it, it really didn't make a lot of sense to me back then. <laughs> yeah, and even if you do go back and rewatch the short and then watch the film or vice versa, you're not going to see a direct parallel. This film is not an expansion of the short into a feature length. It does technically share the same actor, but he's playing a different role. So the Mm -hmm. Jonah character in the film is actually the character... No, let me see if I can get this yeah, right. Exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> so the the Jonah character in the film is the one that the actor who plays Corey in the film is doing in the short. That, that makes make no sense. sense. Oh my god. <laughs> Basically, it shares an actor, but he's playing different roles. But the character is meant to be kind of an evolution, but also a bit of a parallel universe. Yes, that. That. (laughs) (laughs) All this to say, you don't need to have seen the short to understand the film. But I think it gives you a sensibility of what Nicholas Verso is trying to accomplish with this. He likes... He likes bad boys. He likes introspective, basically teens who are undergoing some trauma or bad times, mm-hmm. and they need male companionship to help them work out their shit. Well, I think if anything, and I'll, we'll go into this more once I go into my production, but um, when we kind of relate to what the short film and the, the feature film how they're related it really gives you a clue into the creative process of this man like less so like the link between the stories themselves but how a story can come from a feature script and then how that story can evolve the feature script into something completely different yeah i'm I'm glad that you got some of that built into the production because i actually only know like oh yeah he made a short and the film <laughs> and i didn't know that he was making them at the same time and so on so well why don't we dive into that because i as i as i understand it we have a pretty uh intense plot summary to go through with this film so <laughs> yeah even though arguably plot wise not a ton happens mm-hmm. i still somehow ended up with a lot for us to talk about <laughs> All right, so y'all feel free to chime in whenever. But um, but yeah, basically, Boys in the Trees had a long development from page to screen. Nicholas Verso first submitted the screenplay to the New York Gay and Lesbian Film Festival in 2011, where his script won the award for Best Unproduced Screenplay. This was the this was based on the first draft he wrote, but he wrote it to hit the deadline so he could apply to that competition. So, <laughs> as we all do, yeah, whatever version that was is definitely not close to what what final product we have from 2016. Luckily for him, Mushroom Pictures optioned the script immediately. Uh, They entered financing, which apparently isn't very easy in Australia. All the aspects of the film that other people would have shied away from, they embraced. And what he's referring to mainly is the music, since, as you already said, Joe, the film does have a pretty big banger of a soundtrack that would be very expensive to put in this film. Oh my gosh, yeah. And apparently they wanted even more, but they ran out of money. Aaron, were you a child of the 90s? Uh, I definitely was. And hearing some of these bangers uh, from the opening scene, 
sequence when they're in the skate park and right. they're playing spider bait, I just went, oh my god, I had this almost mm-hmm. rash-like, you know, reaction to it. <laughs> like, I just consumed a bunch of shellfish and was going into anaphylactic shock, and it was just my youth <laughs> just <laughs> leaping out at me, and I was both excited and terrified by the fact that, oh gosh, we're going to be kind of hitting a couple of trigger buttons here for me, and it started with that damn fucking song, Buy Me a Pony, which I love, but I associate mm-hmm. so vividly with the time in my life I, I was... I would have been in year seven, so I would. I'm, I pretty much align with the ages in terms of like the nostalgic kind of continuity with this, and so I was very much a kid of this age. And there are many, many aspects to this film that feel incredibly real, tiny little details that made me go, "Oh wow, oh wow!" This was definitely written by somebody who grew up in this exact time and place and has a great affection for it, but obviously, maybe like myself, also looks back on those years as being. Wow, they they call them the best years of your life, but maybe they were, but they also were probably for me the most terrifying <laughs> years of my right. life. And um, but I guess that makes for a f- like a fertile ground for for creative expression, right? Um, and I yeah. felt all that coming leaping at me when I heard that "Buy Me a Pony" song in within the first couple of minutes, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh God, here we go! <laughs> I'm ready." I felt the same way when I heard uh, "Glycerin" by Bush. I was like, "Oh shit, this is like." pure high school for me this yeah a lot of these songs are just hitting the sweet spot for kids of a certain generation yeah well i was gonna because y'all are gonna laugh at me so i was a child of the 90s but a teen of the 2000s so i didn't know any of the songs in this movie oh my god oh my god i can't (laughs) to the point where i whipped out my phone during one of them and shazammed it and i was like oh it's a marilyn manson song (laughs) oh my god trace I didn't know any of these songs. Guys, look, this was really fun. I've really enjoyed this podcast, and um, I'll have you back another time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, I can't be here with you idiots. This is is not an age thing. I I, I don't listen to... I I was a very good... Like, I was the behaved child, so I didn't listen to um, this this racy music that the rebels listen to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Trace, not a big fan of Ramstein, huh? (laughs) I prefer animated films and musicals. Oh my god. Shout out Deputy Judy. <laughs> hey, Deputy Judy. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, but, but so all that aside, you know, the Mushroom Pictures was like, fuck it, we will pay for this movie. But they were committed to working on other projects at the time. So while they they could not enter production right away, Verso was like, all right, well, why don't I do this? Um, he goes off to make a short film called The Last Time I Saw Richard, which is where he met Toby Wallace, uh, who is the actor that plays Jonah in the short film and Corey in the feature length film. I swear that's what I was trying to explain. I swear. Yes. But but the reason he decided to do this was because there was an initiative in Australia that would allow you to make a teaser meaning a short film that sort of spoke to the tone of the film you were trying to finance. So mm. he decided to lift a story out of the film and the story is the one of Edward. The one where uh, he, he oh. had made a promise to have all these dreams, to accomplish all of his dreams but then he got older and he didn't accomplish those dreams and his mm-hmm. dreams festered and turned into these little shadow creatures called darklings and he chose to do, to lift that story because it had a lot of the elements that people wanted to know about like who's gonna play jonah who what are the darklings and all those sort of questions so in the process of making it a self-contained story it grew and became its own thing and it sort of deviated from how it originally fit into boys in the trees and this is where if you haven't seen the last time i saw richard i'll give a brief like this is what happens in that because it is very different because my issue with the last time i saw richard when I watched it was, it, 
well, especially comparing it to this film, is the Darkling seemed to very much be a metaphor for mental illness in the short film. Absolutely. So, in the last time I saw Richard, we see Jonah, played here by Toby Wallace, in a sort of group home for troubled kids, and he's in there because he is a cutter. Uh, his new roommate is Richard, played by a very young Cody Fern, who listeners may know mm -hmm. from American Horror Story. Richard is, has these sort of night terrors in that when he sleeps, the Darklings come after him in his sleep, and the two boys form a connection, and Jonah tries to protect Richard one night when he sees a Darkling hovering over Richard's sleeping body. And so that night, he gets in the bed with him, and they just sleep together, literally. Mm -hmm. The next morning, an employee walks in on them sleeping in the same bed. Jonah is then promptly sent back home, and Richard is left by himself to deal with the Darklings on his own. And the final image of the short film is Richard sitting in front of a television with the static going, and he turns the volume all the way up as the Darklings just start to surround him and cut to black. It's kind of grim, but also beautiful. It is, but going from that to this, I was like, what happened? <laughs> Here. So as we can tell, after watching Boys in the Trees, Richard's story is obviously similar to Edward's story. In the original version of this feature film, it's basically Jonah telling the whole story to Corey as a way of Jonah explaining his backstory. So it was actually going to be his personal story, but it was more stylized. Right. Originally, the hope that they would go straight from shooting the short to shooting the feature and Toby Wallace would play Jonah in both. But because of Mushroom Pictures' prior commitments, it took a lot longer to get the feature film off the ground than he expected. So by that time, Toby had grown up a lot and he just wasn't believable as a little bullied kid anymore. Um, he was much more believable as Corey because uh, Verso had told the story and felt kind of done with it. Like, I think... I think the time between being finished with the short film and actually starting the feature, he was like, oh, I don't want to tell that story from the last time I saw Richard anymore. Which is fascinating, right? Because when we've talked about microqueers and how they can be used as, you know, a bit of a, a concept map, like, hey, this is what mm -hmm. I would do as I, if I was able to turn it into a feature. Oftentimes when we see that finished feature, it is very similar to the short. So the idea that a short grows and turns into something new to become a feature is exciting, but unusual. Well, also because the Jonah that's in the short is more reminiscent of Django in the feature film. Mm -hmm. But so, yeah, so he added the Halloween story to it. And I believe also the period pieces. I don't think the short film was in 1997, but... Yeah, the whole thing takes place inside a building, so you might not even know. Yeah, it's an undetermined time. Yeah. So he cast Gulliver McGrath as Jonah in the feature length, and because Gulliver had played Jonah so differently, they just kind of became different stories. And so I got the impression that Verso was very um, collaborative with his actors, so I actually think that he was probably working with them before they had the green light, like for sure, like of when they were going to start production. And they, so they were all adapting the script in pre-production, basically. That, that's what I gathered from this. Yeah, definitely when you start to look at how the Jonah character change. Well, and I wanted to touch on that because because of the fact that this film is included on so many queer lists of like, you know, oh, like, you know, queer films you need to see, be it queer horror or just queer films in general. And I have a quote from Verso, and I it's a little long, but y'all bear with me on this. So when asked whether or not there was something romantic going on between Jonah and Corey, Verso replied, I think guys just get so caught up in a fear of their own emotions toward other guys. Many straight men are afraid of being gay in a way that women aren't. Girls are way more comfortable within their sexuality. Without being too explicit, I think it's also the act itself, which I think here he means anal sex. sex. 
Yeah. yeah. Um, that terrifies men. It's also an emotional thing with me. Uh, gay and straight work better as adjectives than nouns. So that you might be in a gay relationship or have gay feelings towards someone. But you yourself haven't changed because then you don't change it's just your relationship with people. You've got straight feelings towards this person and gay feelings towards someone else, blah, 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 blah. But here's the thing. Originally in the script, the Jonah character was actually very sexually confident and really promiscuous. He was out and proud, queer, and not afraid to use it as a weapon because he knew it made people feel uncomfortable. That portion of this character obviously ended up getting cut because once Gulliver started playing the role, it didn't quite feel right. And sometimes when you cast the role, some parts of the character don't feel right for the actor. So that aspect of that character was removed from the feature film. And I have conflicted thoughts about this process. I don't know about y'all. Yeah, I'm interested, Aaron, because when I see this, so I've seen this film two or three times now and i have mm -hmm. always read jonah as explicitly queer and that's why he's being bullied and that's why he ultimately takes his own life so i'm perplexed by the idea that people would see this film and be like oh it's not queer enough like aaron do you read jonah as a queer figure that's actually really interesting in terms of that process and that explanation from verso uh yeah, I, I definitely, Jonah definitely, yes. I guess potentially throughout, just because of the narrative construct, I was kind of mm -hmm. more on Corey's wavelength and trying to read queerness right. in him. Um, mm -hmm. and, and there are moments in, uh, there are moments in it where, you know, they hug each other and I'm like, I'm like, oh, Corey is, yeah. doesn't realize something in himself yet that may come out yes. down, down the path. And, and in, on an emotional level, in terms of just like hitting those nostalgia buttons, when I was in like, you know, when it was 1997 and I was that age, I'm sure if mm -hmm. I could like peer through, you know, the, the viewfinder and watch myself interact with other kids my age, whether I thought that they were gay or straight. Mm -hmm. I probably hugged people in a similar way and I probably wanted yes. something in the same way that he's obviously yearning for something and just not known what that was. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of like those, because uh, I didn't probably come into my sexual awakening until a little bit later. And so looking back, I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, that was a, that was a kind of like a sexual awakening speed bump that I yes. bumped straight over. And I probably thought <laughs> of it, I probably looked at it at the time as being, uh, instead of being, oh, I want this person, I was more like, I want to be like this person, or I terribly mm -hmm. want their validation and approval. And so right. I think, I guess maybe I was feeling that kind of uncertainty in their relationship throughout the film um and if i kind of just extricate myself from what verso has said in that com in that comment and just look at it at the film on its own i kind of like that mm -hmm. the, the the queerness of jonah's character is a little bit more subdued but i maybe was looking for queerness in jonah and maybe not seeing it which probably is why verso decided to draw away from that potentially. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure if Jonah was actually a, a gay or if he was just being targeted by right. all of these people and they were, right. and th th there is nothing more hurtful or cutting that they could have ever called him that, that would be worse than calling him a fag because that to them mm -hmm. with their, their wolf-like mentality is just the only way mm -hmm. to degrade this kid and to break him down. So I, w I wasn't certain throughout 
whether or not he actually was, or if he even knew that he might be. It was Corey that I was kind of like, I think that one day the sequel, Boys in the Trees, like Boys Part Two, is set like 15 mm-hmm. years later. I'm I'm absolutely convinced that Corey is not in a relationship with Romano over over Skype in in New York City. Right. He's in <laughs> he's in the Hamptons with with a guy. Um, looking back on uh, on those on the, that sweet you know summer uh, with with mm-hmm. Jonah and going, gosh, if only. I could have saved him, saved him, and in turn, kind of saved myself. But sometimes, you know, things have to fall apart and die in order to regrow. So, but I think that's part of the metaphor that you know. And this is a film that is just loaded with allegory, that is driven by allegory yes. almost to a fault. Um, and so, I kind of see that that's probably where Verso is coming from on that. And I think it makes it maybe more interesting um, than necessarily, uh, you know, a younger kid of that age at that time, 1997, using his sexuality in an overt way to protect himself and to antagonize others. It may have just not have run quite as true. I don't know. I don't know. What do you guys think? No, no, I mean, that's okay. <laughs> I think for me, and Joe, I'm going to bring this up and you can tell me if you want to me to put a pen in it until we actually get towards the plot aspect of this. Okay. I think for me, I mean, I, I kind of did read Jonah as queer, but only because his mannerisms are a bit more effeminate, which may not be fair to just to gay people. Um, for sure. Yeah. I think my thing was, though, and I mean, I'll spoil the end of this movie right now. So, I mean, we didn't offer a content warning for sexual assault because there is like we don't see sexual assault. Yeah, but it's in there. So I appreciate that. Yeah. But my thing is, it's like, oh, okay, so the one that was sexually molested, like, yeah, the one that was molested, of course, is the, is the gay one, the effeminate one. And I, that mm-hmm. is something that always kind of like, doesn't necessarily rub me the wrong way, but I'm just kind of like batting, like, not, oh my God, batting an eye, raising an eyebrow at it, where I'm just kind of like, oh, I don't love the implications because so many of anti-queer folk are very much like, oh, like you're just mentally um, unstable or something traumatic happened in your past that made you this mm-hmm. way. And so that bothers there's me a little bit once we get to um, what's essentially a reveal at the end in the end of this movie. Yeah, I can definitely see it both ways. I'm inclined to agree with Aaron where obviously Corey is our protagonist and we're focusing a lot of our attention on him as well as his reactions and interactions with Jonah. For me, I definitely see the queer coding in both of them, and I think the film is mostly interested in exploring how Corey is trying to walk away from that. Now, obviously, we should also acknowledge that there is such a thing as homosocial relationships. Men can just be friends with men. Right. They can be intimate and have physical contact with men, and it doesn't mean that they're queer. It doesn't mean that they want to sleep together or have romantic relationships. So especially when we're talking about films and tv shows with teens we need to tread a little bit carefully because sometimes that's just people working through their issues sometimes it's people who are not queer and they just have a really strong attachment to their friends Mm -hmm. in this case i definitely see Corey as somebody who's trying to distance himself from trauma but also because that trauma is associated with a relationship that he's not entirely willing to acknowledge he may have romantic feelings wrapped up in i can see that for sure so I, I didn't want to like derail us like in the production aspect of this, but it's just because that was a quote that I found from him. I was like, that's very interesting mm-hmm. to me. But what well, just changes the entire trajectory of the film, right? Like yes. I'm trying to think of if Jonah was out and proud and really like sexually assertive, this would be a very different kind of film. Like the reason it's moody and contemplative is because we don't 
know that much about Jonah. Well, and that's the thing, too. You know, you have a lot of critics and reviewers that are saying, oh, this is kind of like a very Stand By Me-ish film. But whereas the last time I saw Richard became more of a horror film, Boys in the Trees became a coming of age film. And mm-hmm. Verso himself describes it as something as something akin to Before Sunrise in that it's two people unpacking each other and getting to know each other and very dialogue driven. But mm-hmm. also the difference between Stand By Me and Before Sunrise is Before Sunrise, while it is about two people taking a walk and talking and getting to know each other, it's romantic. Right. Mm-hmm. So I find it interesting that Versa would call would compare it to that when there isn't uh, really that aspect of the romance in this film, but unless we're reading into it. Uh, yeah, I think it depends on how much you want to read into it, because I read even some of the scares, and I'm using kind of air quotes here. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a moment where Jonah scares Corey by reaching through bars and embracing him. And I'm like, okay, so that's doing a double dip, right? He's trying to scare him to get him back on his side and to kind of continue the game. But it's also a boy giving another boy a pretty assertive hug. Yeah. And we'll get into it when we get to um, their walk down the street when they take a tussle in the grass. But um, mm-hmm. that, that mm-hmm. was really the moment for me. But that, I guess it's because there's physical contact. Yes. Yeah. Isn't it? Oh, God. This is where you're, you realize that as queer people, we are so starved for content sometimes that we're like, voice touching, gay, gay, oh my God, feed me, feed me. I'm just like, I'm so satisfied because I finally get to see myself represented on screen. I never get to see this. Oh my God. I could, I could read queer content in the trees. You know what I mean? Like, that's how starved. <laughs> Because we're always having to look, right? Because we just don't get enough of it. So we read, we almost have to read into things too much because we're, we're always on the lookout for those signs. Oh, absolutely. Okay. And, and having been the age that I am, which is apparently like a thousand years older than Trace. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's true. You and I, Aaron, we're dinosaurs. Wait, we're dinosaurs. I think y'all are like four years older than me. <laughs> oh, look, excuse me, get off my lawn. <laughs> I think, I think I'm, so programmed uh, because of searching for queer content in anything before I even knew that I was gay. And I mean, before I had an awakening when I was younger, I absolutely was looking for it even then that that habitual Mm -hmm. need to see representation and the search has never left me. So even in stuff that is overtly has queer content, I'm still looking further than what uh, I, I will ever get. For me, part of the, you know, we, there, there are pros and cons to the idea of queer coding in uh, in narrative features nowadays. Mm-hmm. I'm like, maybe we should be bringing it to the forefront, and I, and that's great. But for me, there's something about the hunt and the search for it that is mm-hmm. uh, that I associate with maybe being young. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but I think that's there. So when, when I mean, they're tussling. It's, it's, it's inherent with queer culture. Absolutely. So when they're tussling on the ground, I'm like, uh-huh. Mm-hmm, yep. There we go. I knew mm-hmm. that was coming. Uh, the reaching through the bars. I really like what you were talking about before in terms of just in, not queer relationships, but uh, uh, men who just love and cherish and the the affection and the touch of other straight men um because there's like mm-hmm. in in the group you know in the the kind of skater bully group there is still like those two guys there's the two who are like i don't like it when mum and dad fight and they they at one point they're doing lady in the tramp style um sharing mm-hmm. a, 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 a like a snake uh, like a lolly snake yeah. that they're kind of nibbling on which is all of this kind of uh, very very um plutonic but also just men who love the touch and feel and company of other men in, in a completely heteronormative sense that's all there too yeah. so i would be curious to see 
uh, to watch this film with somebody who identified as being straight and just to see how much of that they picked up on. Um, and just yeah. to, as a comparative analysis, I guess, if nothing else. Straight listeners, because we have them, let us know. Yeah. Because like even when I like the first time I watched this film, I thought, oh, the reason that Django is so upset that Corey is pulling away is because he's in love with him, too. Like, I read almost all of these <sighs> characters as queer. But then I wonder if I'm being like you, Aaron, where like, am I just cruising for queer readings? Like I'm always on the hunt. I and I, I can see that. I I think we are primed to think Django is coded queer because he's the bully, right? Like, yes. oh, he is the internalized homophobia bully. Boom, mm-hmm. boom, boom. So I, I actually tried to resist reading him as queer in an effort. And I'm not saying that you can't because I do think it's very easy to, but in only in an effort to try to like get get that trope out of my because mind. Because that gets exhausting, doesn't it? Like, we've seen that so many times. And it, it feels like it hand waves away bullying and trauma and uh, violence, even. Well, and I also am like, again, I'm not saying, again, you're wrong for thinking that. Um, it's just because I, it was my first instinct to think it, too. But I think mm-hmm. also us doing that, it takes away from the potential aspect of just him being someone who's like, I miss my friend. Like, I'm I'm sad that my friend is leaving. And, you know, that's something that should be normalized between two straight men. Yeah, I resisted it, too. Um, I didn't I didn't want to go down that path. Uh, I just feel like it's more interesting a story if if it's that if it's just that straight love. Right. For lack of a better term. Right. Yeah. Hey, I'm almost done. But so basically, yeah, I mean, well, I have- <laughs> Trace is like, please just let me finish. No, no, no. no. I, it's literally just the releases. So <laughs> this film uh, has its world premiere at the Venice Film Festival in September of 2016 before heading to the Discovery section of TIFF in September. Oh, actually, two days later. Um, <laughs> then it gets an Australian premiere in October, a wide Australian release that same month. And then it doesn't come to the US until October of 2017. So we have to wait a bit for that. But. There you go. <laughs> you just know the Americans were waiting for Halloween so that we could release it here. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I will say because um, some of the interviews that I found, you know, a lot of them were from 2016 when the film was doing the festival circuit. But I also found a couple from 2018. And I guess the film had just hit Netflix at that time. Right. It's not there anymore. So I, I think that people had just started discovering it around then. Yeah, makes sense. So, yeah, I mean, not a ton of reviews. There's only 21 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, but we're looking at a 76% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 6.3 out of 10 and a letterbox score of 6.6 out of 10. We don't I have no box office information for this because no. obviously this didn't get a wide release. But um, but yes, I, I think it is generally liked. I know AV Club included it on their end of year list of the best movies we saw this year that we didn't review. So mm. that's another thing, too. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, thanks, fuckers. <laughs> Verso had had gone on to say, like, you know, they didn't have any money to market this film. So all they could do was release it. So oh. that unfortunately probably played a part in why there are only 21 reviews of this film. Well, it's OK. We'll soon bump it up to about 23, right? There you go. <laughs> it definitely uh, I remember it being a thing here back in October of that year. However, I think it, I only saw it because it's very much in my wheelhouse, but I, I know that this was a small film and it kind of makes me a bit sad. I wish that, but if you were going to have the funds to, to put in one place or another, I'm glad that they invested everything into the look, the effects and the performances because it's, it's quite a, quite a beautiful looking film. Mm-hmm. That's what I was telling Joe before you logged on. I was like, I honestly know, I don't know the budget because I can't find it. I, I guess when it's government mandated, like they don't, they don't release the budget or something, but, um, I was shocked at how good this looked for what again must have been a very low budget film. Yeah. It's surprising what you can do when you have to get creative, right? But I think the style of this film is so 
it's so integral to what makes it impactful, right? Like if this didn't look the way it looked, I think a lot of people would be able to write it off as just kind of art house indie fair. And it's definitely still that, but it's so stylized that it feels, it starts to almost feel like a fever dream, which I think really leads into the allegories that Aaron was talking about earlier. I was just going to say that it reminded me of, um, uh, Neil Jordan's Company of Wolves, uh, not just the wolves allegory, uh, but in terms of the stylization. Whoa. And the and the uh, and the, the the narratives within narratives within narratives. This little babushka doll of stories within stories, and and that mm-hmm. almost fairy book stylization, I think, is in this as yes. well against a suburban Australian kind of normality. I think I think that that's there too. Yes, absolutely. It's interesting, Aaron. So we covered a UK film that was very cheap. It was uh, almost like a staged film, and it was called The Wolves of Cromer, and it shows up on a lot of these kind of queer, sort of horror adjacent film lists. And I thought it's fascinating to me that queer lifestyles, but also I guess boys, sort of roaming together always ends up getting packed into wolf packs and, and allegorical texts. I'm like, that is fascinating. There is like a paper to be published in this realm. <laughs> I'm sure there has been. There probably is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So are we ready to dig into this? Let's go. All right. So it is Halloween 1997. And I'm going to dig into my own Australian fun fact here. Aaron, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But I saw that Verso did an interview where he talked about how Halloween often falls on the last day of high school. And it's interesting because he references that the last day of high school is the death of childhood. And Halloween is all about celebrating death. And we really see those two kind of intersect in this film. I definitely get that, and I think that that all works and fits and resonates. If there's one thing about this film that I'm, I'm like, mm, okay, is that in in 1997, Halloween was never this big. It was never this big no. in, in Australia at all. There is no. a, there, there's a really great quote in it that I'm like, oh, yeah, my parents used to say that. Well, uh, was every time um, my brothers and I would say, can we do something for Halloween? They would always go, Halloween is an American invention to sell lollies, mm-hmm. you know, which is, and so yes. when, when that is, when that is said, and it's completely not true, um, <laughs> when it's, when it's said, I was like, oh, that actually kind of endeared me to the film greatly. And, and, and I, yes. actually, because I love this as well. And as, you know, there's something to do with it. We would not be the first people to say that the the, the outsider is a, appeals to outsider traditions and norms and cinema itself. So the idea that this all kind of gets mogged into this Halloween fairy tale, I completely let it pass because it acknowledges two things on the Halloween front, which is that there is that kind of traditional rejection to American culture. The Americanization of mm-hmm. Halloween as an event is yes. something that I remember as a kid we were told, like, you can't do it because it's too much like America, which is a really peculiar kind of thing that Australia has with uh, with other countries. Um, mm-hmm. Not Canada. It's Canada, the, Canada too. Yeah, mm-hmm. look, uh, to a lesser degree, but, you know, we've got that Commonwealth, guys. It's just It just keeps us together. Yes. <laughs> but I think that there is a rejection <laughs> yeah. towards it, and it's got something to do with, I think, um, with jealousy, about, about the idea of... They're just like us, only more powerful. So therefore, we reject them. And I think that they're, yep. that's a, that's a very Australian thing. I can only I can only imagine. So I'm glad that, that was acknowledged. And the other thing as well is that I was watching all these kids like 
zoom around on their skateboards in these masks and things. I'm like, fucking hell, they must be so hot. Because October is hot <laughs> in, 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 yeah, uh, in Australia. It's, uh, and it, and it is <laughs> sweltering. And so when, um, there's that scene when, uh, Corey and Ra- Romani are in the convenience store and she's like, I'm sorry, but you stick. <laughs> here is, here is some deodorant. <laughs> and, and, he, and, and he applies that. I was like, wow, I'm actually really glad that they yes. acknowledged that because it kept this real. So I really liked the way the film throughout allowed itself to go into diversions of both fantasies uh, in regards to the tied to the narrative and the characters, but also flights of fantasy around the idea of Halloween in Australia too. And it always mm-hmm. kind of looped back around and would pop a little pin on it that said, I'm aware of the, the slight element of play here. Um, I would even say yes. that uh, Halloween in Australia currently is still not quite up to where this film no. portrays it as being in 1997. If you, if you, if you in 1997 went trick or treating and rocked up to somebody's house, they'd be like, no, child, here's an apple, go away. <laughs> Get the fuck off my lawn. Get the fuck yeah, off my lawn. Yeah, very much be the old man on lawn. Absolutely. Well, so, what are you that. doing, Aaron? Go fix Halloween in Australia. Oh, I'm, I'm trying. I am embracing it. It's actually nice on my street. I, I, I live in Canberra, and which is the Australian capital, and I live in a little bit of like this little suburban nook, and the kids all, all along the street. We're, we're totally into it this year. And so my partner and I just were like, all right, well, we are fucking doing this right. And nice. totally decked the house out. And it was terrific. It was great. So we kind of, it, I've never had what this film is showing. And in terms of having a Halloween, that kind of feels anything like what it's like in the movies. So there's a bit of wish yeah. fulfillment here on the mm-hmm. Halloween front. And I think that that wish fulfillment works on an allegorical level because there's so much yearning for more in the fabric of the film and the characters' journeys. So I think that um, yes. I think that that's where all the Halloween vibe kind of comes into it as well. But yeah, it was something I was watching. I'm like, mm. and I think the film is set in Adelaide. It's shot in South Australia, and I was like, wow, it would be so hot, and they, those kids would be so yeah. smelly. <laughs> because gosh, well, that's why he yeah, stinks. That's why he stinks. <laughs> so I kind of loved that little bit. I thought that that was terrific. I love too that it's like. It's set in Adelaide. It's not set in Sydney. It's not set in Melbourne. It's like this is, I mean, Adelaide's still a city proper, but it's it's not the kind of sprawling metropolis where this kind of behavior would get you noticed or these kids would be run off the street by cops. It's like, yeah, no, they could probably still get away with being basically moderate juvenile delinquents and people would just kind of write it off as okay well uh these kids are going to grow to be bogans and we'll just keep an eye on oh my god (laughs) bless you guys for even saying bogans most people have no idea what that means (laughs) that's that's very great do you research that how do you know about bogans please tell me It's because actually I lived in Newcastle for a year. Uh-huh. Um, I'm from Newcastle originally. I'm from the Hunter Valley. What? Yeah, yeah. I went to I went to I went to university in uh, in Newcastle. Um, and kind of that's where up. I worked. That's why I was there. Uh, what year? <laughs> we, oh, we, can, like, we can talk about this another time. So. We can talk about this another time. But <laughs> we'll this is so fine. cute. Uh, yeah, but it's no, just... this is a, this is like a reality show. Y'all go on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Contestant number one. Oh, what school did you go to? In what year? <laughs> it's very blind date because I can't see you. Like where this is just an audio yes, recording. Indeed. It's like what's on, the suitor number three behind the door. Um, but no, I'm from that area. <laughs> uh, I'm from that area, and Newcastle, like Adelaide. 
uh, has its uh, pockets of affluence, but also has a mm-hmm. real grittiness to it. And Adelaide yes. is still like that, and so is Newcastle even now. So I love that it was set in Adelaide. Um, uh, there is there is a, a sequence in the film where there is, uh, I think it's Edward's house. It's it's this slightly Victorianish looking kind of larger looking house that is mm-hmm. an Adelaide style house to yes. a T. And it's yes. actually You're really so right. it's actually really lovely to see that type of architecture on film. You know what we were talking about looking for queer content and queer coding. That's something that I've mm-hmm. always done. Being Australian, the uh, the films from other countries dominate our media completely. And it's to the oh, point yeah. it's to the point now where any sort of broadcasting service or streaming service is mandated by the government to have a, a percentage of Australian content. So it mm-hmm. Which is terrific because otherwise it would be crushed and destroyed by the weight of, of these international imports. So growing up, yep. I wasn't just looking for queer content. I was desperately starved for anything that was Australian. So mm-hmm. that wasn't necessarily soap opera, um, you know, you know, your neighbors or home and away and things like that, which is funny because half, half <laughs> which the Which is cast, hilarious because we have actors from yes. <laughs> neighbors in this movie. Totally, totally. So uh, I was, it, I even now am programmed to get a little bit of delight when I see things that just feel really, really Australian on screen because we don't see it often, Um, especially within genre because so much of what we do in Australia with our genre exports is that we try to Americanize it either through through a stylistic approach or we bring in... There's this really great tradition, it's a little bit funny and I kind of love it, of anything that's genre-related from about like the late 1960s through to the mid-2000s. In order to sell it internationally, we would have to have say, Stacey Keach and Jamie Lee Curtis in the truck in, you know, in road games, <laughs> like going across hey, the other. that movie. Oh, I love that movie so much. Or, or you know, it's like, um, what's it, that, that guy coming in with the crocodile in Rogue or, you know, it's so it doesn't matter what it is. There needs to be a, a slightly tenuously <laughs> um, some tourist that's, that's obviously will sell right. to an international oh, Michael, market. Oh, Michael Vartan. I'm sorry. Uh, yes. Yes, that's him. Uh, Greg McLean was the director. So there's always been that. So yes. there's something kind of lovely about this film not doing that and telling something that is yeah. kind of very genuine to, I think, Verso's universe, which incorporates a hunger for Halloween as a child because I certainly hungered for Halloween as a child. So I think that this all kind of, I may be, I I started off the film being, especially and just looking back to the Halloween stuff, maybe rejecting a little bit, but actually loving it even more for its love and affection and yearning for Halloween. Because it's just so Australian. Yeah, yeah, totally. How did we get the architecture? What a loop. What a journey that that (laughs) ball was. Sorry, guys. (laughs) We are a a tangent podcast. It's Uh, totally fine. (laughs) Good, 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 good. Um, P.S. Newcastle's great. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, go visit. It's got lovely beaches. Okay. Big sharks. Really big sharks. Just so you know. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So our protagonist is a high school teenage boy named Corey, uh, Toby Wallace, rocking hair that I would have coveted as a high school student, like just absolutely drool worthy. I know, Trace, this is not your thing, but I know. Is it, were, were, did you have long hair when you were in high school? No, but my best friend who I was in love with did. Oh, uh, OK. That makes sense. It was like this only straighter because, of course, in America, we did like the stupid bowl cut thing. So 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so Corey is immediately coded to me as a bit of an outsider because the other boys are skateboarding at the skate park and he's taking pictures, which to me is like, oh, he's creative. He's, he's, he's sensitive. He's an artiste. Is, is he a little bit? Hmm. Yeah. You know. So he's taking pictures of his aggro friend Django, who is played by Justin Holborough, and Django crashes into Jonah, who is played by Gulliver McGrath, and Django immediately punches him in the face and calls him the F-slur. So you're like, cool, Django is our piece of shit character. Mm Mm-hmm. And then Corey takes a picture of Jonah, which is like, okay, so this kid is also a bit of a little shit. And he even steals the smaller boy's Zippo. I do think it's interesting that in casting uh, McGrath, Verso makes this very deliberate decision like, McGrath is so much shorter and tinier than all of the other actors. So you're just like, oh, shit, this kid's going to get picked on. He is not going to be able to defend himself. I will say, um, because I watched this a second time. I watched this twice and I watched it again today. And uh, knowing what happened in the past um, Mm -hmm. made these early scenes watching Jonah very difficult. Like, it's a thing where I understand why he ran away when he ran away. And I understand why he distanced himself from 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 Jonah. Oh, yeah, I'm okay. sorry. Yeah, this is Corey. I'm sorry. Um, but it, it made watching Corey very difficult in the, the first like third of this film. Yeah, because you really get the sense, oh, he he's not just a bad kid. He's a follower, right? Like yeah. he's willing to go along and hurt this boy that he knows something terrible has happened to that he has already treated like shit. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the, there's the irony there of the, the whole sheep versus wolves mm-hmm. kind of allegory that's running throughout and that there's the obvious kind of Corey sees himself because he's part of that pack as being yes. one of being one of the wolves but because he has no real sense of identity or or, or really ambition or, or any sort of inclinations to deal with what he is and what he's done to this to this kid he is the ultimate sheep. You know, he's just the follower yep. in the pack. So there's a moment where yeah, mm-hmm. I think Romani calls him out as being like a wolf in sheep's clothing, but it's actually the, he's yeah. actually a sheep in wolf's clothing, um, which kind yeah. of, well, no, I, again, plays back into... I think, I think that's know? what she calls him, actually. Ah, okay, yeah. See, there we go. And because he's, he's just that follower. Yeah. So I love that you kind of picked up on that. And the moment when he he kind of lifts the camera and takes a little click, it's it's all very clear from the get-go as to what we're dealing with here with, uh, with Corey. But even in these early scenes, like, there's a great sense of... St- style and the way that Verso is using the camera like there's a a lot of energy in these opening scenes which I think is really important when we're talking about a film that's dealing with boys who are up to no good like I guess in a way it does feel American in that sensibility but I think it's also immediately giving us a different kind of flavor absolutely and just that it being back to the the last day of school this is where we're at it's the beginning of the rest of their lives it's the death of one thing and the beginning of something else uh mm-hmm. something that felt very very real to me and i don't know if uh, it happens in canada or elsewhere but on the last day of school everyone brings permanent markers and sharpies to school and we sign each each other's school uniforms oh that's why they got the writing oh, sure. yeah so that's why they have their writing so it's like you know uh you know best friends forever or you draw a dick and balls on their back and you don't tell them um and there's there's all of that <laughs> I- because there's dick and balls on all their shirts as well. So there's these peppered kind of phallic right. imagery all the way throughout. And it's there as they're in this skateboarding, you know, little park doing their – it was all very um, – do you remember Paranoid Park, the Gus Van Sant film? It was – it's it's very much that world, which is, 
in and of itself a very a very queer story. I, I'm glad you said that though, because I literally thought not literally I, I thought that it was just <laughs> something their gang did. Like they just all wore right. white shirts and just wrote all over them. <laughs> no, but it, it, the thing is, is that it's it's that heteronormative love that you were talking about before, because these guys would mm-hmm. all write on their backs love you man can't wait to do whatever right. it's all the things that they can't say they would scribble on each other's shirts on the last day of school and so that mm-hmm. was that was that a, a very legitimate real thing for me and it again was that wave of nostalgia because those shirts you hold on onto until and the moment you kind of let it go you realize that something in you has really grown up right it's it's uh, you know it's it, you, we don't do the signatures in the yearbook we do the signatures and and messages on each other's shirts, right? Wow. Yeah, so okay. that's that's a thing. There we go. There you go. You're earning your keep. The, my 1997 Australian fact checker over here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're earning your keep. So we'll we'll keep you around for at least another part of this film. Deal. Um, so they end up crashing at Corey's place. He, from what we can gather, has a single father and the dad is interested in his future. He wants to know about the package that Corey received from the University of New York and Corey is very uninterested in engaging in any conversations with this he basically only placates his dad as long as it takes the others to steal a bottle of booze from the liquor cabinet and then everybody heads upstairs and this is where we immediately get the power dynamic slash hierarchy between Django Mm -hmm. and Corey because Django just rips into him like oh so I guess you're leaving us and Corey has to clarify that it's actually not about Django at all and then he shifts the conversation away from that because he doesn't want to deal with it so he asks why they pick on jonah and that's where we get the run with the wolves you have to kill a few lambs kind of line so it's like here's your allegory this is what we're going to do for the next hour and 40 minutes i do love that it's Django that delivers the allegory because and maybe maybe i'm going into stereotypes here but i don't believe for a second that he would know to apply a metaphor to the situation (laughs) he does seem a bit thick I probably a recurring critique for the red for the next one hour and forty minutes probably. Um, just bef- just a one little thing about the dad when we when we're introduced to the dad, I had to rewind it and I was like, wait a minute, because there are many many needle drops throughout this movie, and there's one yes. when they when they introduce the dad and the song that he's playing as he's tinkering with his computer is I don't know the name of this song, but I know it straight away as soon as I hear it. It's the song from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the the, the Toby Hooper <gasps> film when they. In really? when they're in the van, um, and Franklin th- th- gets cut on his arm by the hitchhiker. So there was mm-hmm. there was something about the parallel between that song and what I associate Texas Chainsaw being, which is all about death of 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 family and about and about right. purging bloodily into whatever your next version of yourself may be. I was picking up on little hints of that even before they got up the up the room upstairs and there is a little very very Australian thing that I'll mention here when they get upstairs they put a video cassette in and they start to play music um on mm-hmm. the on the video cassette it says rage rage <laughs> was a is a is a, a definitive it's on our local broadcasting service, like our national broadcasting service, and it runs from about 
11 o'clock in the night through to 6 o'clock in the morning on weekends, and it's just music, back-to-back music. Music videos. Music videos, yeah. um, and of, they'll have international hosts and things like that. So if you wanted to, and we would record it so you could watch it and right. play it at parties and things like that. And so as soon as they did that, I just raised a little, I raised my glass, and I was like, well, well done, Nicholas. That's well good. Well done. Touche. Touche. <laughs> and so um, whatever it was that they were going to go, so those little moments of reality, I will... I will balance out maybe a slightly awkward metaphor intrusion here and there, which again, like mm-hmm. you said, springs up in this scene. <laughs> so anyone around the world is going to get the next needle drop because it is Marilyn Manson's beautiful people. Unless you're Trace. Unless you're Trace, in which case you're just horribly uncultured. But yes. Um, <laughs> So we get beautiful people in a montage as they get ready in their costumes. They're packing up all kinds of shit where you're just like, oh, well, this isn't going to end well for anybody. (laughs) And then they go spray painting garages and teepeeing trees and generally just being little shits. And we just like the piece de resistance in this is Django encourages Corey to throw a dead bird at Jonah's window. Yeah. Um, Just, Just like shit. Garbage. Did y'all ever did y'all ever have anything like that happen to you? Like did y'all ever have like bullies come to your house and do something to it? I don't think anyone ever launched a dead bird at my window. Uh, I don't think that that ever <laughs> no. happened. Um no, I don't think so. I was uh, for, for me growing up there were bullies absolutely. But because I was kind of a floater, I could maneuver socially between the wolves and the lambs. I I was, but I never really belonged anywhere. And I had allies on every side. So when bullying happened, I was always blindsided because I thought I was safe or that I had an in. So there's that moment, kind of going back to that initial scene when the, the, he's punched, uh, uh, Joan is punched and he hits the ground and then he, who he thinks of as a friend, somebody he has tied, takes, tied to has a takes a photograph of him that hurt actually did resonate uh, because for me bullying was always kind of peripheral it was always about allies and less about dead birds thrown at my house that to me is the case (laughs) yeah like the dead bird is aggressive right whereas some of the microaggressions that we see in other ways like when we get the I kind of break it down because in a way this film is an anthology, right? Like Jonah is taking Corey through a series of stories and when he finally gets to his story and we get to see some of the abuse and the harassment and even the violence that has been inflicted on him, I was like, yeah, this is starting to feel like some of it I think feels a little rote because we've seen it in so many other texts. But uh, I mean, for me, it's always the locker room stuff, just the posturing and the masculine bravado of boys in a locker room. Right. Like I, I literally faked illness to get out of having to go to swim practice, like the swim practice segments of gym, because I could not stand to be in a locker room where you had to get naked with other boys. See, I never had to do that in PE because I only had PE class. I didn't do sports, but um, I, and I think I've said this on the podcast before, but um, I definitely had um, my house got TP when I was in like middle school, but they also shaving creamed my sidewalk, and oh, I don't know if you know this, but when you shaving cream sidewalk, it actually bleaches it. So what if you write words? in the sidewalk with shaving cream say um they will stick and right. they will basically tattoo the sidewalk so mm-hmm. i definitely had um trace is a fag and trace loves the cock bleached onto my sidewalk for a good year oh god wow oh, wow i hate 
And this is before I was out. So I was like freaking out. Like, oh my, I mean, it was a Saturday morning and I was like, hey, I ran outside to go clean the toilet paper. But like my parents, of course, thought it was a joke. And I'm freaking out thinking, oh my God, like, are my parents going to think I'm gay? Yeah. I, I, it's, it frightens me so much looking back that people could see so much of me that I thought I was protecting myself by, by holding in mm-hmm. and, and masking as best yes. I could. And the fact that it doesn't matter. They, they knew, they yeah. saw, um, in the same way, nobody has better gaydar than straight men. Uh, you know, I feel like sometimes <laughs> God only knows I've barked up the wrong tree once or twice. And, but I, I, everyone knew I've never been TP'd, never had a bird launched at my place. Uh, I've never had somebody you know, shaving cream, my, my sidewalk, <laughs> which is so awful. But I, I remember, I remember every slur. I remember, I can't remember yeah. what I had for breakfast mm-hmm. this morning, but I absolutely remember every bully who, who definitely threw an insult my, my way. I definitely yep. got that, the locker room fear. We had a swimming pool at our, at our school. I, I have nightmarish kind of memories around that. I, especially being like this awkward, pale skinned redhead fat kid you know like this is that that was very much like a nightmarish kind of environment for me and i remember faking it doing everything (laughs) i could i remember bullies and their insults i remember being yeah i remember being called you know that getting the f word thrown at me um poofta which used to always really upset me yeah. when people would say it i don't know why but there was something about that word and the way it was used as a weapon uh that really used to upset me as a kid but then on top of that they were they were making fun of you because you have red hair or because you're overweight i remember one kid used yeah. to this is as far as bullies go i'll give this guy credit because this is a little bit funny but he used to call me <laughs> he used to call me fridge with like refrigerator because I was full of food. Mm. <laughs> like I actually think that's oh, my God. <laughs> like God. on the on the spectrum of like, you know, inarticulate oafish bullies, I I thought that was it had a, a little degree of wit. So I, I'll give him that credit. <laughs> but yeah, I <laughs> but not much. But not much. Yeah, the best the best that my bullies could ever come up with, because my last name is Lipsit, so people were like, ooh, lipstick. And I was like, that's not even clever. Like, can you at <laughs> least try harder if you're going to try to embarrass me or mock me? Yeah, two, yeah, star, two, stars, two stars on, on uh, bullying letterbox. Done. Two stars. Yeah, your Yelp review for <laughs> bullying is very low. <laughs> See, I just had a bunch of dumb brutes because I grew up in Texas, so that's just, that's what we had. <laughs> creative uses of shaving cream apparently in texas exactly brutal uh, okay okay so we meet up with romany who is played by mitzi rollman and this is at the cemetery where we have kind of proceeded to move the party so from the skate park to the cemetery i won't lie the idea of hanging out and having a party in a cemetery seems like a very bad idea for a horror film but also kind of like a good time like i I'd like the idea of hanging out in a spooky cemetery. Maybe that's just me. Just don't dance on any graves. Yeah, exactly. I I have seen too many horror films to do that one. Graves, <laughs> grave parties, graveyard parties were a thing absolutely for, for us growing up. My house used to back onto a very large lawn and there was kind of a little bit of a swamp. And then there was the church and its graveyard at the end of my yard, basically. And oh, wow. I may not have always been invited to those parties, but those parties were always happening. And they were exactly as they kind of depicted here, which is drinking, smoking, and <laughs> also cream charges. 
Like, was that a thing in Canada? Basically, kids inhaling cream charge bowls, bulbs, and like essentially like gas, inhaling gas. We used to we used to call them names. (laughs) <laughs> which is just, <laughs> okay i have no idea what the two of you are talking about right now it's the canister it's like you know a whipped cream can like cool whip that right. you can like squeeze oh, out of a can okay mm-hmm. it, it's the canister that like pressurizes it you can pull it it's yes. a little like it's like probably four inches long but you can pull it out and like get high off of it if you just like inhale a little bit of it yeah yeah and uh-huh. so you guys call it whippets whippets yeah that's really weird but i guess weird. no i guess no weird than us calling them nangs and i the reason people used to call them <laughs> nangs is because when you inhale it all you can hear is in your ears going nang 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 oh that sounds horrible <laughs> see that makes more that actually makes, i mean we call it whippets because it was in a can of cool whip so like we whip right. it. There we go. There we go. Oh, misspent youth in a graveyard. <laughs> it seems like I mean, a great time. I want to reiterate, I've actually never done a whip it. And like, if I, I, <laughs> no, no shame. Like, if I had done a whip it, I would cop to it. I just, I, I, I never understood the, um, the process of a whip it. I was like, wait, 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 wait. So I got to get this cool whip thing, get the canister out. I, I didn't really know. I'm sure now I could just Google it. But yeah, I remember it being a massive thing. I remember going to birthday parties, like when you're 16, 17, 18, and mm-hmm. instead of giving people gifts, they would give each other a box of like cream chargers, cream bulbs, <laughs> which, which were Shit. like, you, you, and I remember like you, you, you'd pick up, you know, the person would pick up the present and they just give it a little shake through the wrapping, like, oh, I know what that is. Won't be opening that in front of mum and dad, will we? And that no. there was always, they were always really, really difficult to purchase. Like, I think a, a 15 year old kid buying cream chargers was always an odd it's conversation yeah, to have at yeah. the supermarket. So I remember for every one of these kids, they had these elaborate stories like, my mom is a cake maker and like how many cake makers are in this little town. Uh, so I, re- I remember that. That, that again, was another little popper pin on it, nostalgia thing that I was like, wow, it felt real <laughs> in a graveyard in the middle of the night. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So while the partying is going on, we do get an isolated scene with Jonah. He's now dressed in a red jumper and he's got a kind of death face makeup on. He is drinking heavily as he sits by either a river or a dam. It's not entirely clear. And we catch a brief glimpse that he has a number of scars on his wrists and then he disappears out of sight, moving towards the water. And I don't know about you two, but... Even the first time I watched this, I was like, oh, okay, well, I know what's happening here. Like, he's dead. I, I was very much in the, okay, we're doing, and, and I figured that's where we were going uh, once this kind of kicked into gear. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some reason, yeah. I was just reminded of the opening of uh, I Know What You Did Last Summer when Billy Blue's like sad and like, <laughs> oh, yeah. downing downing alcohol on a on a cliff face. Um, mm-hmm. It just was, it reminded me of that for some reason. Not that there's any sort of illusion that I think is deliberate, unlike, say, The Red Jumper, which is like full-on Elliot in E.T. vibes, uh, uh, yes. which is the Halloween night where they go out and he even has the same kind of pale face makeup that kind of was just reminding mm-hmm. me of Elliot in E.T. Well, but then that we bring in the day of the dead stuff which is day of the dead big down there for y'all no not at all but however i will say that (laughs) that that sequence though is 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 a highlight of the film because it's this genuine moment of just kind of pure confusion that for some reason i actually really liked no i mean it's it's you see it commonly in in mexican lore right Mm -hmm. like that's a mexican holiday (laughs) yeah yeah well look australia is an incredibly multicultural society so it is very very possible that you could be walking down white bread lane and then take a a turn left and you are in this 
beautiful little pocket of 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 a fully establishing surviving culture that wasn't completely yeah. destroyed by the immigration process like you know at last century and so that right. absolutely would happen it's just not necessarily something growing up in in, in a small kind of rough little neighborhood where i grew up it's not something that i yeah. was that i saw but i kind of love that it's here because australia is many things but it is diverse in ways that sometimes Australians don't like acknowledging. Um, but that's a, yeah. that's a conversation about race and racism in Australia for another mm-hmm. day. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a whole fucking podcast because race in Australia is a big issue. It is, yeah. a complicated, it is a complicated conversation to be having here. But anyway, yeah. um, Red Jumper and having two <laughs> drinks in a reservoir. Yes. It's, uh, yeah, but I was like, yay, E.T. illusions, which is... I know that this is going to seem weird, but I've always seen E.T. as another one of those kind of like isolated male kids hungering mm-hmm. for anyone to understand what I'm going through kind of queer yeah. narratives that I, al- I always saw E.T. E- e- as a film as something that connected to me on that vibe. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, at the very at the very least, right? Like we're talking about outsider stories. You know, there's the Stand by Me comparisons that Trace you made earlier. It's mm-hmm. very apropos because, of course, we've got boys who are maybe up to no good, but they're also doing that male bonding thing and kind of finding out who they are. Et, it's like stories of outsiders and like making a human connection even when it's not with another human. Like he he is drawing from a deep well of interestingly enough other YA properties as well. Because when I look at this film it's queer horror it's queer coming of age but it's to me though the ya-ness of it is the thing that shines through the most strongly yeah i would agree with that okay so at the cemetery we get some scenes with romany and Corey, and they are very much a match for each other she feels the same way as him she wishes that he would see more in her but she understands that he like wants to get the fuck out of this town he's not like the other boys and I think to me, the most hurtful part of this first chapter or the the first act of the film is -hmm. when he repeats Django's line to her, which is like blunts to smoke and bitches to fuck and that kind of shit. And you're just like, you are the mouthpiece of this asshole boy. You do not believe these words, but you just told that to the girl that you like. It's such a shit move. She calls him out immediately. She's like, they don't have to be your amigos para siempre. And I'm like, yep, there you go. Call him out, bitch. Mm-hmm. Totally. I do love that Romani just sees through his shit. Like, she does not suffer fools. And he really ends up having to grovel for her forgiveness later on in the film. Yeah. So when Django literally comes between the two of them, which to me, again, is like a little symptomatic of the queerness of the Django character, because it's like, oh, this boy that I like is getting too close to a girl. I should really interject (laughs) here. This is when Corey just up and leaves. So he goes to the skate park. He sees Jonah skating alone and then we kind of cut back and forth so this is when we get glycerin by bush uh playing as Django tries to prevent romany from leaving she has to go to work and he basically says everybody pack up your shit we're gonna go with her he takes Corey's camera and then at the skate park this is where we get some jostling between Corey and jonah I do love that Jonah fakes uh, head. Well, he does hurt himself, but he fakes passing out so that we can nearly get a kiss via CPR. Yeah, I, I, yes. <laughs> I, I don't have anything else to comment on this, but I, I, I was, I was wanting it to happen. Right. 
because uh, yeah. Corey is so trepidatious. Like, if Jonah had have actually been ill, the amount of time that Corey takes to say, mm, do I want to put my lips on this other boy? It's like, dude, this kid could die. How many um, How many kids so, have died because of, like, repressed sexuality? Like, <laughs> oh I, hate think, I hate to think. I hate to think. Dozens. I was going to be facetious, but if we want to do, like, terrible statistics, I'm sure quite a few. I would but, imagine. Uh, okay. So this is where... I mean, Corey's such a, a faux bro in this moment. He insults Jonah's mother, and then he's like, oh, it's okay, you can take a pot shot at me. And instead, Jonah proposes that they play the game they used to play when they were children. And this is uh, Coctus, which is a reference to an invocation of Dante's ninth circle of hell that is reserved for traitors. So just, uh, you know, right percolate on that a little I bit. I didn't know that. I uh, I was I assumed <laughs> that there was some sort of reference there, but hey, look, go Adelaide education system. These kids are very literate. <laughs> <laughs> They're very intelligent children. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I, the thing that I'm fi- I, I'm really interested about in terms of the game, uh, you know, is that I really love narratives in which there are essentially folk horror. You know, this kind of branches mm-hmm. off into elements of folk horror in regards to the rites and rituals of children as a means of navigating adolescence. And mm-hmm. and that in order to pass through this journey, through this tunnel, through these trees, uh, they have to kind of pass a ritual of their own design. Uh, in right. which they have to look forward and also look backwards. So for me, we were kind of branching into folk horror stuff here, which kind of deepens with the introduction of a character a little bit later on, um, wearing a white right. suit. Um, yes. And so I was kind of, uh, I was I was really into it, and also that kind of um, this kind of bleeds into that sequence where you know the kids are kind of walking along and they see the house and they talk about Boo Radley, which is To Kill a Mockingbird, which is uh, I'm like these kids really did pay attention in school. Go mm-hmm. gang! I, I'm a pretty, but I, Dante's Inferno. I didn't I didn't pick up on that reference. So when no, I, I, <laughs> I I every, I, I, I buy a child knowing who Boo Radley is, but yeah, like knowing like Dante's Inferno, like I I, I didn't have to. Maybe I'm just going off my education here like i to kill a mockingbird was like everyone in america has read to kill a mockingbird like it's a very right like yeah thing but not every high school mandates that you read dante's inferno i mean to me it's another sort of symptom that jonah is a bit queer coded right because he this is me very much like reaching as far as i possibly can Mm -hmm. i was that queer kid who had a couple of really good friends, but I spent a lot of time by myself in my room, entertaining myself, building an imagination, which is clearly what we see Jonah walking Corey through in this film. But also I read a shit ton because that's what I did to entertain oh, myself. You actually, you know what, uh, what else this, this movie reminds me of? I don't know. I don't know. I, Joe, you probably read this actually, um, is bridge to Terabithia. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I, especially with one of them being dead. <laughs> yeah yeah no you're, you're so right i never thought of that um that parallel but especially yeah because one of them are dead and look as um i think it's uh jonah says at some point uh, it's like not everyone can survive in the dark and it's not really a story without a dead body so that's very bridge to terror mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and I'm, I'm not saying that like like knowing that jonah's dead this early in the game because I, I i the movie telegraphs it i think pretty much so i don't think it's, yeah it is a reveal but i don't think it's like a it's reveal. not a twist yeah 
So I do like the fact that Jonah insists that he and Corey agree on the rules. So Corey has to agree to follow the rules. And if he can see it through until the end, then Jonah will show him something. And of course, Corey is being a giant fucking dick. And he's like, oh, I better blow my mind. And you're just like, Jesus Christ, kid. Okay. Gonna no, 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 no. Body. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that is a reasonable, like, oh, I have to go through this entire fucking game with this person that I haven't talked to in years, and you will show me something? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All this to say, uh, they both agree to the rules, and then we get a slow motion. To me, this is such a YA thing, where it's like, we see a slow motion jump, and it's like, oh, we're passing into this liminal state. Like, now the sort of nightmare dreamscape can begin. Mm-hmm. I think Jonah says it's. I think Jonah says at some point, um, but and it's in the bridge of into the, this this luminal space where it's like as people grow older they lose their sense of wonder, which is mm-hmm. where I was like, okay, I'm ready for Stephen King's it imagery to kick in any moment now, because right? <laughs> that's and literally thing. that's where we go. It's literally where we, we go, go right to a storm drain. Yes, straight yeah. into a storm drain with werewolf imagery, which I know that like, reminded me so much of like obviously it the book, but also the the, the nineteen ninety one mini not nineteen ninety miniseries with Tim Curry, which is all about mm. a werewolf kind of m- metaphor and imagery in a, in a in a boiler room. So I was very much in. Yeah. I was like, I'm ready for it now. Yeah, and I do. I wasn't exactly sure how the film was going to do this because there's lots of different ways to tell a story in a film. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it'll just be like, we rely on camera and atmosphere, like in scare me. And other times we'll get what Verso is doing here, which is like, we're, we're going to recreate these stories with different lighting and different actors and that kind of stuff. And I feel like this version doesn't always work, but these scenes are so brief and they feel distinct enough that I like them as they're almost short films of their own that are kind of like a a mini scary stories to tell in the dark. Well, we only get three of them. So it's like, you know, we get the genie girl first, then we get Edward and then it's jonah's story so i i i think it works and also because at first glance you're like wow genies feels really out of place here but of course when we get to the end it's like oh that's kind of jonah's story too Mm -hmm. Mm. yeah he's really cueing us to say hey are you ready for the dead body all of these people are me my story is interwoven into all of these and if you pay close enough attention (laughs) you'll know where we're going to end up well, and coincidentally, weirdly enough, though, it is the second story, the one that is that that the short film is based on, that mm-hmm. feels the least connected in the feature film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as we said, so the the first story is this genie story about the girl who wanders into the storm drain and disappears when her older sister is lured away by predatory wolf boys. And I like it. It's cute. It's not cute. I like it. It's brief, but it's got a certain scariness and it it's a good primer for how Corey reacts to this because he tries to be very masculine and lots of bravado and then a bird flies by and he gets really scared and they have to leave. It also shows that he's repressed the memory, though, because he doesn't mm-hmm. link this to what happened between the two of them. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, the other big thing from this story is that this is the introduction of the man in the white suit who is played by Trevor Jameson. I do love that this is an Australian film that acknowledges that indigenous people exist and actually mm-hmm. cast them. 
this is something that I find very fascinating about this film because it's um, and I don't know how far to read into this. You know what I mean? But I guess it's the type of film that invites us to go deep on this because the film is absolutely so many narratives within narratives, dreams within dreams. There's something about the idea of a First Nations man wrapped up in this almost colonial style white suit. Uh, that, mm-hmm. that there's there's something there's something about that that I think is inviting us to to question what what is it that we can't acknowledge and face that we've done wrong here uh kind of yeah. narrative and so that with the, with this character weaving his way through i think if we didn't cotton onto the idea already that we're going to have to face the fact that we've betrayed something and we have to acknowledge mm-hmm. that we should be uncomfortable about what we've done that I think this character is an an archetype of white guilt that is yes. threaded throughout this entire narrative for the rest of the, mm. the film. So I think there's something mm. there. It's interesting. And Aaron, we should probably acknowledge just because the relationship to colonialism and indigenous people is very different in your country and mine compared to traces. Uh, so. The shorthand that I typically use specifically for our American listeners is that the relationship to indigenous people in places like Australia and Canada is not quite tantamount, but not too far off from the relationship between black people in America. So there's there's genocidal histories, there's uh, oppression, and we really don't fucking like to talk about it. So we just repress the shit out of that. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's a very fair statement to make. Australia has a very uncomfortable time acknowledging uh, the, the fact that uh, not only did the moment that, you know, the white settlers arrived in Australia, that they just got a little gun happy. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that's that they also realized, well, maybe we shouldn't just kill everyone on site. Why don't we give them alcohol to dope them out? And then they'll be easier to, yep. con- to control. And then once that became an issue over, over a series of number of years, what they did is they essentially, they stole Aboriginal children from homes and put them mm-hmm. in, uh, and put them in cross, uh, in, for lack of a better term, assimilation programs in which uh their their indigenous stats would be bred out of them over a series of generations it's an ugly yep. it's an ugly thing in australian's history and it would be in, inappropriate in the conversation that we're having to not just say that it is grotesque and so i really yeah. appreciate that this film a acknowledges as you said uh it's it's indigenous citizens who have been here for far longer than we have um, what, you know, why colonial, uh, you know, Im- imports and convicts. Uh, and also, I think that there is something there about this film that I haven't quite figured out yet in its like little kind of narrative kind of vortex, but I like that it's there. Let's put it that way. I appreciate the fact that this character not only exists, because I think the easy read is, oh, this is the specter of death. This is a character who's going to guide Jonah to the afterlife. But he's not a menacing predatory figure. Like, I debated whether to describe this character as kind of the it follows for Jonah, because everywhere Jonah goes, this character sort of shows up. But he's never attacking Jonah, right? Like, the Darklings are doing that. Whereas this man just kind of says... I'm here when you're ready, come to me, and we will move you to the next phase, which like this movie is all about moving into the next phase, right? Like it is about boundaries and crossing them and becoming different people. And for Jonah, unfortunately, that means moving on from the mortal coil. 
Um, okay, so that went heavy. Yeah, well said. Well we said. <laughs> I, li- I like the werewolf shadow. I like the werewolf shadow on the locker room. Door. There we go. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that was also cool. <laughs> Spooky. Yeah. <laughs> so, Trace, as you cued us, sorry, I-, I was trying to get through it quickly, but I think there was stuff we had to unpack there. Yeah, but- no, absolutely. So, the second stop is the house with Edward and. I think that this is maybe the most conventionally horrific stuff apart from the Darkling imagery Mm -hmm. in the woods. Just the sight of... I I love how we move through a kind of time lapse as Edward starts as a child, gets older, as he forgets his promises, boards up the toys and his promises of adventure into the basement of the attic, and everything just turns to rot around him. But the final imagery of him being almost a comatose zombie in front of the TV... It's um, it's f- amusingly damning to me because so much of this movie is about being outside and having adventures. And it's very much, oh, if you're inside and watching the TV, then you're dead. You're already lost. It also introduces the concept of these darklings, which because we, we have the darklings that will chase them later in the film in the mm-hmm. woods because they, they had they meaning Jonah and Corey had dreams together that, well, rotted and turned to darklings. Yes. I, almost wonder if this this story would feel more connected to me mm-hmm. if the threat of the darklings was looming over them the entire film hmm. like not that they were always being chased but like i don't know like there was always a darkling in, in in frame somewhere where it was like well they're together now and so these dreams that they they had together the, the these plans they had that festered are now following them and getting closer and closer and closer. I can definitely see what you mean, because I think it would lend the film a bit more of a sense of menace and like ominous foreshadowing. For mm-hmm. me, I'm I'm sort of going back to the Dante's Inferno, like they're making right. their way down the different gates of hell, and we don't really get to the scary shit until later. Yeah. Question mark? That, that, that does make sense. Uh, so important to note that this story plays out, but this is also where Jonah effectively traps Corey in this house behind the gate. This is the moment where he hugs him, and it really feels like a lover's embrace. Like, he is trying to scare him, but I see this as it's a hug from the friend that I haven't gotten to touch in so long. Like, I feel like I read a lot of joy on Jonah's face, and maybe it's just he is enjoying scaring the shit out of Corey. Well, but it, this is also, I think, is this the first time we get an actual, like, flashback to to the inciting incident? I think so, yeah, because there, we start to get imagery of them as children right. uh, intercut with them in, in the present. Yeah, so I think, uh, I, I get what you're saying, but this is also, like, this is now when Corey is starting to have those repressed memories come to the surface. Mm-hmm. Do you think that he's repressed them fully, like he doesn't remember this, or do you think it's just the story cueing us that this is coming? I, and maybe I'll disagree, I did read this as the mem- like he has repressed it, and the more time he, and that, that's why he, he stayed away from Jonah, so the longer he's in the presence of Jonah, when he makes contact, physical contact with Jonah, mm-hmm. that's when these memories start to come back to him, and it's, I mean, it's, it's that guilt that he has that he's pushing away, but now he's not, because he's accepting it. I, right. I probably somewhere in the middle on this uh it's a really interesting thought i felt as though whatever truth that he doesn't want to acknowledge is is something that he's attempted to repress but never was able to um and he, right. he's f- forever um trying to crush it by being with this group 
by being the type of guy who will take a photograph of his friend when he's down, even though he knows he shouldn't, but he does it anyway, uh, by echoing and pantomiming ugly words from one of the guys to this girl, and also ties into the imagery of this uh, indigenous man in a white suit. It's like, I think he always knew and always has... It's, like, I don't think he's repressed it as much as he has ever wanted to, which I think mm-hmm. taps into his kind of disjointed melancholy that's hovering over him continuously but that's my reading i'm not too sure though i need to sit on it for a bit longer i think i guess the reason i think that he i I mean i don't know how much he's tried to repress it but i definitely feel like he's deliberately walked away from it because at this point he does say that he has changed in accordance to the rules of survival to meet the laws of the jungle and obviously this is like verso loves a colorful verse in this movie it's filled with almost like shakespearean levels of dialogue And to me, this is very much Corey saying, I had to change. I couldn't be like you. I couldn't play these childish games. I couldn't do those activities anymore because if I wanted to survive, I had to become more of a Django. So I read it as a deliberate choice. I think it, yeah, I think you're right. And well, it's interesting that the preceding scene to this is all set in a library, which kind of, uh, which, which is this you know, this vault of stories and, and library as mm-hmm. sa- library as a, a place of safety as sanctuary kind of bleeds into this scene in which, you know, I've, I kind of feel as though this movie isn't just trying to talk to kids who felt alone. It's also for kids who were storytellers in which the act of storytelling was a means of defense or survival. And mm-hmm. even then mm-hmm. it wasn't virtuous enough to keep them alive they still got fucked yes. over. So I think that the storytelling element kind of, that makes sense. What you're saying resonates with me. I changed my mind. You're right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's a journey. Life is a journey. It's not a competition. It's a journey. <laughs> there you go. I'm so happy that you brought up storytelling because one of the other sort of classical texts that I feel like this film might be leaning towards is the never ending story. Yeah. Mm. Trace is like, no, I don't no, see No, <laughs> I, I, I was trying to remember the never-ending story because I, I watched it once as a kid and once the horse died. Like, I'm like, oh, never watching that again. So oh, God, I don't yeah. really remember it. <laughs> I mean, basically, it's this, I mean, sort of like The Princess Bride. There's a bunch of these stories that use mm-hmm. bracketing or framing devices where it's a child who is getting exposed to something that they're maybe not entirely prepared to address via the story that they're told. They're gotcha. learning these valuable life lessons, but it's often all about like imagination responsibility growing up dealing with trauma (laughs) i'm so glad we brought up the never-ending story if you would ever like to start up a podcast that's exclusively dedicated to unpacking the the never-ending story i am so here for it because (laughs) there was no film that i watched more as a kid more than the never-ending story and it was to the extent that my parents like hid the vhs we borrowed it so many times (laughs) borrowed it so many times from the video store that eventually they just gave it to us and even then my parents needed to hide it they we needed to hide it because we were just watching it continuously and then i went about about 15 years with never watching it and then i revisited it and it it was um i had the most this is a tangent but i had the most visceral Mm -hmm. response to re-watching that film because that film nothing no film in my childhood made me cry more frightened me more or filled me with awe 
more than yeah. that film. And having not seen it, I put it in as an adult. And yes, I'm sure objectively you could look at it and see the rough edges around the, the filmmaking craft of that film. I saw none of that. I felt nothing but yep. completely genuine fear. That filled me as an adult watching this in my living room in the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt terrible grief that was kind of associated and unlocked and brought out in a, in a torrent when I revisited that film. And I I like that you're bringing this up because that's exactly what's happening here, only in reverse in regards to these stories within stories as we flick on that street between them walking along, singing that little rhyme, and then they pass behind a tree and then their children finishing that rhyme. I think that that, I think there is a lot of the never ending story in this that I hadn't picked up on first viewing. And now that you've brought it up, all I want to do is cry because that horse died so terribly. (laughs) Thanks, guys. I'm just going to have a moment. (laughs) Oh, my God. It it is so funny how many people can relate to all you have to do is say never ending story, talk about the horse and everybody just absolutely falls to pieces. It is one of the most destructive scenes for children maybe ever filmed. Oh, and it, the, the thing that's great about the never ending story is that it is an utterly existential crisis film in which uh, mm-hmm. in which we have to realize that we're all constructs of a narrative that somebody can choose to either indulge in or close mm-hmm. for forever. And if the book closes, we cease to exist because it's the story of, of a kid reading a book in which he realizes that the, the characters in the book need him in order to survive. And at the end of the film, he has to realize that in order for him to go into that journey, he has to acknowledge the fact that there are people watching the film, The Never Ending Story. And then that us as right. viewers have to realize that somebody's looking over us and on and so on and so on and so on. So when I tweet about it and somebody reads my Never Ending Story tweet, I'm just, I'm just helping this universe stay mm-hmm. alive and it, and it never will yep. end. And anyway, look. I'm going to save that for our branch off podcast about the running story. <laughs> Otherwise, this will we've 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 hit we've hit a vein here, and I will bleed forever. So, as you were, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we're yeah we're basically up to the school. There there's a moment on the roof where they talk about how animals can sense their own death, which I think has a certain amount of foreshadowing. Um, it's important that we also get a mention of Corey's dog. Uh, because he will come into play later on when we need a messenger to guide us over to the Day of the Dead celebration slash wake. I don't know. I This is kind of the... I've heard people describe this film as either saggy or shaggy or just a little bit drawn out. And I think Tracy and I even had a brief conversation before we started recording that it's like, at times the film can feel a little bit long. And these are the sort of slower scenes where I sometimes feel that. And I just wanted to bring in a quote from Burso from an interview he did with Film in Revolt, where he says, the film is quite dense. In the middle of it, it slows down. And I wanted it to feel like the middle of the night and how you get a bit tired. And I just thought that's so funny, because that's how I always feel when I watch a movie like Boogie Nights, where the whole trajectory of the film is meant to it's basically like a sexual act where it starts really exciting and high and then it kind of gets a little bit limp dick and then you get a big finish at the end. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. So that sort of explains like part of this film is constructed to echo the highs and lows of an all-nighter. So it's perfectly natural that some of the scenes feel a little bit like meandering, like the part where they're 
out looking at the city skyline and Corey just talks about the date that he took to prom or whatever the Australian version is where she got really drunk <laughs> and she threw up and you're just like, what is going on here? But it's just, it's part of what happens when you just spend a night with somebody. That resonates. It feels like that. Mm-hmm. And now that you've articulated it, I like those ebbs and flows even more because I actually do feel that. Yeah, um, but I do want to zero in. So obviously they have the encounter with Django and the other droogs and they make their escape via... Um, I think it's important that Corey actually puts on Jonah's mask for this part yes. because it shows that he's not only really connecting with Jonah, he's actually, I think, starting to embody some of that courageousness. Like he's taking on some of the rebelliousness of Jonah when he goes against Django. Like he's really starting to shift his attitude. Yeah, yeah. And it's a believable shift, too. And I think, I mean, yes, I can complain about the runtime. I do still think we don't need the... um Romany stuff that comes up later, but uh, mm-hmm. because to me, these two boys are co-leads, but the right. film is definitely positioning Corey as the lead of the film. So I, I get why the Romany stuff is here to make this movie 20 minutes longer than it needs to be. But yeah, like the, these scenes like are, are, are what hits hardest to me. Right. So before we leave the school in this kind of flurry act- of activity, we do we want to talk a little bit about Jonah's backstory where we see the kind of series of vignettes of the various harassment and bullying? I mean, what would you like to discuss about it? Well, just more, does anything sort of stand out? Like, I feel like in a way this is a little bit tropey. The F slur in on his locker. On the locker. Yeah. I was like, okay, the chasing down the halls. I guess none of it was very surprising. But then I wondered if it's just because I've consumed so much queer media and I could really empathize with a lot of this because I feel like I've gone through it myself. I was like, yeah, okay, we've, we've all been here, boy. Yeah, I mean, my, my bullying and uh, well, again, my bullying was in middle school. Like, honestly, when I got to high school, like a lot of my bullying stopped, which I realized is a very good thing. Like, I mean, there were still things said about me, but like, it wasn't that bad. Like, and so whenever I watch movies that depict high school, I'm always like, oh, that these kids are acting like middle schoolers because that's how it what it reminds me of. But yeah, there's nothing particularly new to this portrayal of bullying, but it still hit me like close to home just because I could relate to it. But I also like, I I never had like a group of kids like chase me down the hall. My bullies were more discreet because they didn't want to get caught. They they, they were like the, um, the dancing frog in Looney Tunes that only sings and dance when the guy looks at him. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Love it. Fantastic. Can't top it. Let's move on. So, uh, yeah, so we do get this, this scene where they're taking the view of the city. Uh, we get the very funny part where they sing, I called it a dirty limerick, but I was definitely like, oh yeah, we sang a version of this with, I think, slightly less Australian references or like different words mixed in, but the whole Miss Mary had a steamboat, the steamboat went to hell kind of deal. Uh huh. Cause it's like, yeah, yeah. You said dirty limerick. Is that what you said? Yeah. I guess yeah. I don't think that's quite right, but I also don't no, know what else it, to call it. <laughs> it, it. It's it's like the hot chick where it's like, um, boys are cheats and liars. They're such a big disgrace. They will tell you anything to get to second baseball, baseball. Like that, that right. where like the end of the uh, the verse is mm-hmm. the, a naughty word that starts the next verse or whatever. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And I do like that. This is a moment of just pure bonding. Like if this film has very slight touches of joy i would say that this scene is a prime example of it because they seem to be having a genuinely great time and then it ends with a little bit of roughhousing and they fall on one another 
I got. I know. Like, did y'all get like little butterflies in your stomach watching this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're like, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. I know. And I, I, I always feel so weird. And here's the thing. And I don't know if y'all feel this way because I mean, I, I, I gather they're supposed to be 17 or 18 years old. I think 17. Yeah. I always feel so weird, and it's really only when it comes to queer stories when I'm like, oh my god, like, kiss, kiss, do something. And it, it's not the film's fault. It's it's me, because I don't feel that way when I'm watching straight, like, YA properties. I'm like, oh yeah, kiss, right. kiss. There's something about when I'm watching two young boys kiss, or maybe almost kiss, and my, my instinct to be like, oh my god, yes, kiss, like, have a romance, where I almost feel dirty, and I feel like it's just because of the you know three decades of my life that i've had where it's like gays are pedophiles and stuff like that Mm -hmm. yes and so i feel guilty wanting to see these boys share a romantic connection and it's like again not no fault of the movie but like while i did get butterflies oh my god i want this for this scene that i i had like this moment of pullback where i was like oh my god am i disgusting for wanting this you know wow i'm so Mm -hmm. glad you brought this up because i have never been able to really articulate it but what you said just then is exactly how i've felt recently watching something that i objectively love which is the new chucky um season um oh yeah oh mm-hmm. yes and, and those yes. two are so fucking adorable oh my god i love them i they're so great but i get this kind of um almost my my, my shackles start to rise in, in and i have almost a flush of panic when i feel as though i'm shipping them because of this mm-hmm. completely ingrained stigmatized you know um yes. uh, yeah gay gay men are pedophiles fear propaganda yes. that was drilled into me as a child everywhere and so mm-hmm. i don't have an answer to this i, I don't have a conclusive statement but i, I got no. but, i got butterflies in a beautiful way when i saw this scene happen but i definitely got this flush of panic that came straight off the back of it which yep. made me disconnect from the film a little bit yeah and it's not the film's fault i mean obviously it's, it's getting this reaction out of you but it's society <laughs> that's like a really blanket term but it's society <laughs> i blame society <laughs> <laughs> I love Brian Usner's society. It's so great. Let's get to the bit where they all like stumped. <laughs> we will cover that one day. Yeah, no, I love it though. You Gosh. guys are like kiss, kiss, kiss. I'm like shunt, shunt, shunt. Oh no. Shunt. Okay, see, no, I don't want these kids to shunt each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very different movie. It is. Mm. Uh so very tellingly, this moment of intimacy that we were all clearly on board for while also having mild panic attacks due to socially constructed <laughs> stigma. Yeah, this is immediately followed by Corey going to Romany. And I think, Trace, I appreciate what you're saying that it sometimes feels like this story, like we barely touched on her. Where has she been all night? And now we have yeah. to deal with this. But to me, this is part of Corey's queer acceptance slash journey because it's the reverse of a nightmare on elm street 2 where it's i almost kissed the the wrong person so i then run to the person that i think i'm supposed to be with i get that but going into this before sunrise mindset i'm like well you you were telling us a story about these two boys and then we have this like 10 to 15 minute interlude where Corey goes off to talk to this girl and leaves jonah out on the street so i i get why it's important for his story for his narrative but for the overall narrative of the film this really feels like a lull to me and kills Mm -hmm. the admittedly like breezy pace we've had up to this point yeah I could see it. So what we do get here is a 
a different kind of intimacy where this is really Corey trying to make it up to Romany. She ends up getting really angry at him because she feels like he doesn't he won't put in any effort to see or understand her like he doesn't understand the kind of struggle that she's going through and it's such a teenage thing right like you're too wrapped up in your own bullshit to recognize that somebody else might be hurting or going through something else uh so i love that she again calls him on his shit but before this can go anywhere that is when django and the others finally catch up with him we get a classic shithead teenage boy line any holes a goal Oh, Django. What the fuck, man? (laughs) They desecrated Jonah's mother's tombstone. Yeah, I'm actually really happy we don't see it because I I can imagine it well enough that I don't need the actual visual. This is always something with bullies that always fascinates me, right? Because Corey uses the word cruel. You know, he says, I don't Mm -hmm. want to be cruel anymore or whatever. Yes. It's always that thing where I'm like, look, I get get meaning i understand (laughs) i don't approve but i get like bullies like beating up on on the queer kid like beating him up like writing like slurs on his locker Mm -hmm. this desecrating a mother's tombstone too far it's another level where i'm just like you don't deserve anything like i Mm -mm. this is a level of cruelty that i was just like oof and you're right i'm glad we don't see this Yeah, for me, this is one of those things where it's really hard to pull back from it. So there's a moment at the end of the film, like honestly, the the final image in this movie, I think we're supposed to feel something when Django and Corey come to terms with one another and they embrace and I'm just like, no fuck you Django you are not worthy of my empathy and I don't want to cheer for this friendship you're a piece of shit yeah (sighs) okay so uh, we're not there yet because Django is too busy punching Corey in the face for daring (laughs) to go against his requests and this is the point where Corey throws the wolf's mask to the ground and skates away and it's it's very like oh if you're watching the symbolism in this film like (laughs) it's a little on the nose it's a little obvious like I'm not going to be part of your wolf pack throws the wolf mask on the ground (laughs) (laughs) on the nose just a bit Mm -hmm. so this is where Corey tries to do a little bit of a redemptive arc he tries to wash the dead bird off of jonah's roof he sees that all of these adults in this suburban community are basically edwards we just see all the lights and the still figures staring at the tvs and I love that imagery. It's so haunting. It almost felt like a Channel Zero kind of moment to me. Aaron, do you have Channel Zero down there? We do, and I love it. One of the few shows that I've watched over the past few years that genuinely frightened me. Really scared me, actually. (laughs) And not not to divert away from Channel Zero, because of which I have not seen it, but it's a thing where I I always love, in stories like this, and you can go all the way back to Peter Pan, right? Like, uh, the version, uh, uh, their depiction of adulthood. Like, what does it mean to be an adult? And obviously, this is a very intense Mm-hmm. depiction of it because <laughs> it's, it's allegorical <laughs> yeah hopefully most people are not having these experiences <laughs> right but 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 it's also not really far off the mark right like that, that innocence that you lose and like you know you have it sounds silly to be like oh you're paying bills you deal with the real world mm-hmm. quote unquote blah 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 and i feel like especially now in the times we're in there are a lot of times where we all, all of us are in this like 
Yeah. Like we're not really in a daze, but our minds are in this kind of daze where we're like, well, just go through the motions. We have no dreams. We have no imagination. We don't have time for that bullshit, blah, 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 blah. So I always like seeing how different stories like this depict what it means to become an adult. Oh, well, this is the yeah. never-ending story illusion coming back in again completely because the whole idea of the never-ending story is that Fantasia is dying because people are growing up and forgetting to dream to invest in the idea of storytelling and keeping things alive uh which is which is an interesting segue to like the next little bit of this which is like the the intro the i think it's the introduction or the reintroduction of this indigenous character in the white suit which is a a culture that has survived through the power of storytelling alone so that i think that that fits that absolutely fits yeah because so much of indigenous culture is uh oral storytelling right which is really what jonah has been doing with Corey all night long certainly there's an experiential component as he walks and talks him to various parts of their relationship to try to either get those repressed memories going or to force Corey to address what he is unwilling to accept but I love that so much of this is actually, yeah, it, it's oral storytelling. And it's kind of interesting because film is such a visual medium and this film is so visually stunning that the the audio is still really, really important to the narrative. Mm-hmm. All that to say, he and Jonah go and egg and TP Jago's house. That's what I was trying to get yeah. to. <laughs> they, they needed some shaving cream, man. They really missed out on that. Apparently so. I'm actually worried that somebody's going to get some ideas on how to like <laughs> go use shaving cream in an inappropriate fashion now. Use it on bullies, kids. I approve. Oh, God. I, I, I don't approve. No, sorry. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> I was going to say, coming this summer, horror queers approve shaving cream to get back at your bullies. Just, oh you God. know, shaving cream out the front of bullies' houses, gays are great. <laughs> you know, there we go. Exclamation, yeah. exclamation mark and a little love heart in shaving cream. It's not a slur. It's it's not horrible. It's uh, positive graffiti. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we're back to Trace's favorite storyline. This is where we get a staged Romeo and Juliet style balcony scene where, I don't know, part of me was like, Romany, girl, you do not need to give it up to Corey just because he uses a fire extinguisher to <laughs> make snow. Oh, this is yeah, yeah, it's look, a no for me. It's a no for me, too. And, she, and I think she says like... Doesn't this shit give you cancer? Did she say that or did I think it? Yeah, no, she 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 says she says that for sure. And he's like, whatever. I'm young. I'm gonna live forever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The the most teen moment of this entire film is after they have sex and they're talking about their future plans. They barely know each other. They have had sex for the first time moments ago, and they start talking about how they're going to move to Canada together. And I was like, <laughs> kids, no. <laughs> You need to walk that back. And then thankfully, Romani is like, oh, actually, you know what? Maybe I, that's not a good idea. I'll just go and like experience this for myself. Well, but I mean, but it does. I mean, you, teenagers have these conversations. So yeah, oh, God, it is unrealistic. Yeah. But again, I'm just like, ugh, I just, I don't care. Also, dude, where the fuck is Jonah? Like, you mm-hmm. went up to just go fuck this girl and you left this kid behind. I know he's dead, but like, you don't know that yet. <laughs> 
Corey's just using Jonah as a wingman to, to get laid and to bury his, <laughs> his, oh, no. his, his trauma and guilt throughout over, over a period of, of the entire night. And look, I, I find the whole like Romeo and Juliet fire extinguisher sex scene, let's plan our life going off to Canada. It's like, do you know what? Maybe he just, you know, it's 1997. He watched one too many episodes of Dawson's Creek and he's just vibing, <laughs> you know, as we all definitely did. But the thing is like, again, completely unrelated, but in this, scene there is a needle drop which is playing in the background during the sex scene which well the post sex scene which is leonardo's bride um even when i'm sleeping which was a huge song here in australia and which appears okay all right so that song like that song is the song you play when you go through a terrible breakup and you're lying on the bed Mm. with chocolate and ice cream and you just play it on repeat over and over and over again. <laughs> and um, I'm not saying that I've done it once. I'm saying I've done it multiple times. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> so what you're saying is it also foretells doom for this relationship because it's like, oh, why are we playing a breakup song over the sex scene? Oh, look, she does not want to be listening to uh, to Leonardo's Bride. She's wearing a PJ Harvey shirt. Uh, she is, there's a Bjork poster on the wall. I don't think she's the Leonardo's Bride type. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, actually, I, I'd be remiss if we jumped over it because I do think it's an important part. Even if you don't like the Romany stuff, there is yeah. a moment where she comes home from work and we we get a scene of her taking off her makeup. And Verso is very much on the record as saying everyone in this movie wears masks. You know, we've got Corey wearing the wolf uh, mask. We've got Django wearing his clown mask, which is like, oh, people who are scary and also kind of farcical and like ridiculous and then with romany she doesn't technically wear a mask she has her makeup i got it (laughs) (laughs) yeah again it's it's not too too deep like uh, you can see it it's there almost like makeup (laughs) so (laughs) this is where Corey realizes oh hey i should figure out what the fuck has happened to jonah who has again disappeared and he ends up following the dog to this day of the dead wake he sees the picture for jonah but our boy Corey is, uh, I guess, riding high from having gotten laid because he does not put these context clues together. <laughs> I will say I love the inclusion of uh, Live's Lightning Crashes. That's the song that the man in the white suit is singing. And it's almost like a rupture in my brain because I'm like, there's an indigenous man singing a live song. And it's just so surreal to me. But I think it's really gorgeous and beautiful. It's my favorite part of the movie. Um, I think when I was listening to that song, I was like, wait a minute, is this live? Uh, and mm-hmm. I had a moment where I was like, I think it is. I had to sing ahead to get to the chorus. And I was like, holy shit. Yes. It, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's the most kind of genuinely, you know, if we were talking about this is the experience of a night, this is that 4 a.m. clarity that comes just before <laughs> dawn and where you realize – this isn't going to last. And it's it's that Mulholland Drive, we've gone to the theatre and we're watching, it's yes. all a recording. I'm just about to wake up, but I know that there's a revelation that needs to happen beforehand and it feels genuinely like we're about to pass through another one of those gates in Dante's Unfair. Mm-hmm. That's So those were the things that I was feeling during this particular sequence and I, and I loved that moment. I thought it was beautiful. Ooh, Aaron, you actually just gave me goosebumps. I know, I was like, that was a really good comparison. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's so telling, too. I mean, I just want to give a quick note to Trace. Trace, I really would encourage you to seek out this song because this is 
probably one of the most quintessentially like mid to late 90s songs like this song defined it's a band called live and the song is called lightning crashes <laughs> i thought the, i thought the song was called live <laughs> oh sweet baby okay i don't know man anyway go and listen to the song it honestly kind of like it's a song that defines a generation that's how significant it is so when you hear it in this movie you're like holy fuck yes this song it's a big deal. But to to Aaron's point, we are on the precipice of a major revelation. So this is where we run into the woods. It's another moment of heightened intimacy as Corey literally protects Jonah from the Darklings in the woods. And then they find an escape by going into the past. So Trace, if you want to read into your repression, this is the strongest argument for it because it's like, we're finally going to see what happened on this day. Mm-hmm. I do love the image of this giant fucking tree with all of their childhood toys attached to so it. So do I. This Ooh. is beautiful. Yes. And the way the tree is continuing to grow uh, in front of them. Mm-hmm. And, and Oh, I just loved this. Yeah, I wasn't actually expecting to see CGI in this movie because it doesn't really feel like that kind of film. But these light touches really work well for me. And, of course, we have the looming threat of the man in white that mm-hmm. is just staring off in the distance. And in case you didn't quite understand the title, in this moment, it becomes literal as we have <laughs> boys climbing the tree to try to escape him and i really also like the interplay between their childhood cells and their present day cells once again because we can really see how we're not just traveling back in time but they are still kind of those people and it's Corey Mm -hmm. bringing that relationship back and i really really like this sequence a lot i i i do as well it's just i mean as y'all have already said it just it's so pretty it's Mm -hmm. so pretty that initial shot like the long shot of the tree is just oh oh it it is genuinely gorgeous, and I, I I actually didn't put two and two together, but yes, they are the boys in the trees. I think it is the <laughs> well, title, the title in motion. I, I'm glad that the name of the movie wasn't like Bric-a-Brac in Branches. Uh, like I, I probably <laughs> put it together. Well, I was about to get pedantic with Joe and be like, "Well, Joe, there was two boys, but only one tree." But the multiple timelines fix that. So, <laughs> <laughs> and the tree is evolving. Yeah, uh, mm, yeah. Let, let's move on. I almost hate how Verso lulls us into a false sense of security because we talked about how this is so gorgeous. It's really intimate. It's nostalgic. Like this could be a holiday commercial for some shitty capitalist corporation. And then we follow it by immediately going from sentimental and sweet to the most harrowing moments of the film as we see the reality of what drove them apart, which is this sexual assault in the tunnel. Yeah. I forgot about uh, it and I fucking hate it. Like I I think it works really well in the film but I hate having to watch it. Well, I mean I guess uh, I, I for some reason Joe we have discussed a lot of films with rape recently. Jesus Christ, we have. <laughs> we didn't plan on this y'all, we promise. No. <laughs> I don't know. How do you feel about this? This is essentially rape being used as a plot device. Ooh, okay. Well, when you put it in <laughs> when you throw the card down on the table mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. it is i think we probably could have done it in a different way to just connote a trauma but this there's a severity to this that i think is appropriate because really this whole film 
is a tragedy. Like we can sugarcoat mm-hmm. that we're engaged with the relationship between the boys. We think it's very sweet. But at the end of the day, this is a film about a boy who dies by suicide because he has been bullied and he has experienced extreme, extreme trauma. Okay, wait, that's, I know you're going to so, fight so, me on the die by suicide thing, aren't you? No, 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 no. no. Well, I, I wasn't going to fight you. I, I was. I, so, hey, so two things. One, I wasn't trying to combat you. It was just because because that is something we have asked about all these rape scenes we've discussed. You know about oh, it's being used as a plot device or blah blah mm-hmm. blah. I felt it only fair to also ask it about this film. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. But yes, um, I I actually did not read him as dying by suicide. Aaron, did you? Um, probably not as much on the first viewing. I. But but maybe it, 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 it I mean uh, right. That's where my bridge to Terabithia thing came in, though, because the girl in that movie, like she just goes to Terabithia by herself and falls, knocks her head, and drowns. So I, mm-hmm. I was, and that's exactly what happens. Well, I'm sorry, what might have happened in this movie? <laughs> yeah, and there's a power to not actually telling us. So there's there's a level of ambiguity here. The reason that I read it as dying by suicide is because we get that earlier shot where he is. Yes, you could say he's just down by the river because he wants to be by himself. He's reflecting on his experiences. He's not happy, so on, so on. I read this as I'm down here. I'm going to drink myself away. And then if I happen to fall into the water and drown, then that's okay. But like just the the scene of him sort of like that scene ends with him moving down to go to the water. And I read it as a deliberate thing where he's like, and now I end it. Because this is right next to the storm drain, right? Like, th- mm-hmm. This is the same general area? I think so. Because basically once we know – because again, like the, the sexual assault happened in like around this storm drain. Right. So I just – I guess maybe that would lend itself to your die by suicide theory because it's like, well, he's going to the place where his trauma happened. Mm-hmm. But then, I don't know, the optimist in me wants to be like, oh, no, maybe he was going there because, like, for some reason, this place he's comfortable at or he wants to be here. And he did accidentally die. Like, he didn't intend to die. So, I don't know. I really do think you can read it either way. I think you can read it either way. And I like that it's kept ambiguous. There, There is a – on the death by accident scale – there's something to do with uh, earlier on in the film when um, Jonah hits the back of his head and Corey's like, oh, you're bleeding. And then at the end, when it's revealed that he, he maybe hit his head and drowned, that – Yeah. But but then again, mm. the fact that he's down there drinking um, – Yes. Well, this is the whole thing if we're talking about suicide. From, a, from an outsider's perspective, there's so much to be unknown, which is why so many suicides – are not reported as such. And I know in Australia, right. so there, there are car accidents that are most likely suicides that can't be like deemed as suicides. There are drownings, fires, all these things that were maybe suicides, but we can't quantify as such because there wasn't the note. There is only the, the, the awful gap that, this, that these deaths leave behind and the regrets that we have of the things that we wish we had or hadn't done. And I guess talking to the rape element here, gosh, I never really thought of it prior to this because I guess only just watching the film recently. I, I don't know where I sit in terms of this as a plot device because what did, if what does it make this movie like? It's certainly not a rape revenge film. But it's, it's almost like a rape, no. like a rape requiem, you know, to some mm-hmm. degree in in which we have to. But I don't know. I need to sit on this for a little bit longer. What do you guys think? Where do we really sit in regards to this? How does it make you feel? Well, yeah, Trace, because you didn't answer it. You posed the question. How do you read it? Oh, um, 
I, because I, I, as I said earlier, I felt it was telegraphed that he was dead already. I wasn't expecting a rape. I don't really know how I felt about it. I think it was, I don't think it's like a plot. I mean, it is a plot device, but I don't think it's like a. It's not gratuitous in the way that we've yeah, it's seen. Like, but, in and a they lot don't of show anything, but it's one of those things where it's like, okay, so like he was raped. But uh, it, it works in the context of this film for me. And also, yeah, because it does so much with implied. Because all we see, we see these boys confront them and we see the, the zipper go down. Mm-hmm. That's all we see. So I, I don't know. I, I feel like I've talked about rape so much recently that I'm just like, oh my god. <laughs> I'm so tired of talking about rape, but I, I think it's worth mentioning, if only because, yeah, like, we we honestly have selected these films at random where we have used the category of, is it underseen or is it underrated? Right. We weren't looking for through lines, and yet all of a sudden we start to realize, holy shit, there are a lot of films that employ a rape or a sexual assault as a plot device and some of them handle it reasonably well some of them don't right. but there's a lot of fucking movies that are just like hey let's throw in a sexual assault because that'll give our characters something that they have to work through or it'll drive the plot and you're like wow maybe we need to think about this i'm actually looking at our upcoming uh entries for uh underseen and underrated and this is not the last one <laughs> <laughs> yay welcome to 2022 everybody <laughs> But but it's also because I mean th- th- this is children right like this yes. is like we're dealing with pedophilia here and so it's it is very rough but I think that the film handles it relatively well and respectfully as much as you can about this yeah it is a little tricky too because a lot of the stories are actually about rape survivors and this is not that because this isn't jonah's story really at the end of the day it's Corey's story so it's kind of filtered through it's it's really just the reason that he isn't friends with jonah anymore so it's not about how the rape impacts him it's just like that thing happened i can't be around you anymore i don't know what it did to you and maybe that's why I'm having trouble putting my words to it because, yeah, at the end of the day, this is not Jonah's story. We mm-hmm. don't ever really actually know how Jonah – well, I mean, I'm sure we know how we felt about his rape, obviously. But, like, we don't get his real perspective on it, really, unless we're – unless you want to buy that, like, yeah, like, I don't know, like, all these stories he's been telling are just his way of working through it. But then we can get into the conversation of, like, is Jonah's ghost really him or whatever. Well, I think there's – there is one – potential (laughs) there's one line reading early on when jonah hits his head at the skate park and then he and Corey start to get into it jonah does say you let me die yeah but i guess it's the same thing that people had issues with promising young woman where it was like oh like it's a proxy for the rape well i'm sorry in that film not rape survivor because this person did die Mm -hmm. So it's a thing, I guess it's a similar thing where it's like, okay, like we're using this young boy's sexual assault as a motivator slash. uh, Yeah, for somebody else's change and growth. For somebody else. Yes, exactly. Which I get that that's the story we're telling here, but maybe that's why I'm having trouble kind of putting my thoughts into words here. Because, yeah, again, I'm working through this in real time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think I am too as well, which is why I'm finding it a bit difficult to articulate how I feel. Look, I think I agree with you. It's it's, It's handled well. It is part of the plot. It is a plot device. And in terms of the the kind of the revelation that we get as an audience is that the reason that this friendship died in that moment is because 
because what because Corey could never look at him in the eye again because he knew he had been raped, and that is the betray- that's the Dante's infernal betrayal like of Kakaitis. Like is that right? Or it's that Corey got away and he left Jonah. Well, yeah, it could be both, to be honest. Like, oh, yeah. Because we also don't ever... We don't unpack this. Mm-mm. Well, we don't really know if Corey knows exactly what happened to Jonah. Right. Or do you think he does? I feel like we need to... Ne- I think he needs to know it. Otherwise, why would it be in the film? Why should we know that he was raped, but Corey yeah. not? Yeah, yeah. You know, and that it's, it's, okay. that, it's that choice that makes... That's the the kind of the the hinge the hinge that my my acceptance of this as a construct kind of like squeaks on it and, he, and it's and it's it's a, it's a squeaky wheel I think for me in the film as a whole is that it, and then and but then if that's the case if he knows that he was raped and kind of couldn't let this friendship continue not because he ran but because he knew he was raped then that makes me think in terms of at the end, maybe Corey is not, is beyond redemption. Maybe there is no redemption for him. And maybe that's why mm-hmm. at the end in that last sequence, when he ends up hugging and, and embracing Django, Django. It's, it's him going, well, do you know what? Actually, I am a wolf and I can't shake mm. that off. And going to New York is not going to change me. And I, I don't know. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. That's thinking in real time. Wow. You see, Aaron, that would be so different because I, I was about to say like, well, maybe let's move on because I, I really want to talk about the kind of reconciliation that we get between not Django and Corey, but Corey and Jonah. Because I, I guess one of the visual symmetries that I really like in the end of this film is that Corey apologizes. So maybe maybe that's a bit of the clarity is that he knows enough to apologize for what we're not exactly sure. But then they also have this hug, right? And there's been so much sort of dancing around the physicality, the intimacy between these two characters mm-hmm. that it's nice to see both of them meet for a consensual hug. But then also we get that repeated in a totally different and heartbreaking way when Corey finally realizes that Jonah has been dead the whole time and he rushes into the water and he kind of cradles him. And I was just like, oh, two very different embraces. We also because it's two it's a one two punch of like, oh, God, that sucks because he uh, he does the oh, but it could have ended like this mm-hmm. where he actually vocalizes what would have happened if he had stayed and saved him, which, of course, it's like, well, yeah. That's not that's not true. No. And then he gets the reveal of the body. So it's like yeah. this. You have this like almost hopeful moment of like, well, this is how it co- clue. This mm-hmm. is how it could have happened <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. But um, no. And then he he is brought back to reality by the corpse of his one time friend. Mm. I don't always love slow motion in movies, particularly in in these moments of like grief or, or heightened emotionality. But mm-hmm. seeing a teenage boy just absolutely break down as he runs into the water and even the way he's shaking on the bench, like we actually yeah. haven't talked about this performance a lot, but I, I really really loved Toby Wallace's performance as Corey. Mm-hmm. I think he, for me, the whole film kind of rests on his shoulders because we have to care enough about this shitty boy and then follow his evolution. And these last final moments are really devastating to me. Him in the phone booth calling his dad is, is 
incredibly oh, brutal oh. On, on on the old emotions. And I think that there is, I can get uh, narrative tunnel vision about stories about children which which kind of exist in their own perfectly sealed world and aspirations. And when mm-hmm. it takes a moment like him calling his dad and like begging for his dad to come to just just to be with him to remember oh yeah. gosh these are children and this is so yes and fuck childhood is hard adolescence is I don't understand what adolescence without pain is like and I guess maybe that's why this film has resonance because yes maybe we would like to be able to 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 tie this up in a neat bow and say that this is about redemption and forgiveness, right? But mm-hmm. I think it's just only about regret. And I think that... I, I, um, I don't think that Jonah needed to die in order for him to acknowledge his regret. I think the regret is going right. to be there regardless. And, and that's the kind of random tragedy of it all, which is why I'm glad that it's ambiguous. From the, Like, that last 10 minutes is nothing but ambiguity in regards to its moral, ethical and clarative status i like mm-hmm. that but i'm very saddened by this film in terms of walking away from it but also i don't remember so much looking back on my adolescence all the good things i remember only the hurts the betrayals and the regrets that i have and i feel yeah. like in terms of this being a nostalgia piece and to, really we're talking about a versos wanting to set this in 1997 and yes, we're, mm-hmm. it's not just the the sound drops. It's not just the t shirts with the signatures, or or them watching Rage or Halloween. It really is about there's something I think in all of us when we look back, nostalgia won't save us, and it won't in the end dilute whatever guilt we carry with us. And always mm-hmm. will. I don't know. I'm thinking this out loud, but I think that that's kind of because the choice to set it in the past as well. I feel like I think the hurts never go away, and sometimes the crimes mm-hmm. that we do are so deep uh, that they can't be undone. And I kind of like that the film questions that, as opposed to using nostalgia as as a form of defense. If that makes sense in any way. You know, it does. <laughs> yeah. That, like, that's honestly better than I could have put it. Like, I, I, so thank you for that. Well, and this, like, I'm now trying to imagine what this movie would be like if we did have some kind of bracketing device. And it's, you know, old Corey looking back on his childhood buddy and how he grew, which is a little bit of, you know, kind of a To Kill a Mockingbird and some other classical YA stories. Did I get that mm. right? I haven't read To Kill a Mockingbird in forever, but sure. I feel it's like so, a lot of like Stand by Me, definitely Stand by Me is is, is there. We go. Yeah, mm-hmm. Stand by Me is the better example. Yeah. Thank you. But I don't care for those kinds of plot machinations because they they often feel really inauthentic to me. And I've been schooled by my YA podcast co-host Brenna <laughs> that it's like, oh, that's actually not even technically YA. That's uh, a very different form of writing. But particularly, I like what you said, Aaron, about how this feels like it's using nostalgia to remind us that we shouldn't be beholden to nostalgia. Because especially in this day and age, like 
2016, we weren't quite there as strongly, but like nowadays, it's like Jesus Christ. We need to stop pretending like the 80s and the 90s were. I was like, the best go tell ever. Hollywood that you go, you go you go to Hollywood's door right now. Mm-hmm. And be like, Excuse me, <laughs> I'm this, no hide behind nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're looking at you, Ghostbusters Afterlife, and <laughs> I mean, like, and like, no shade to Mike Judge, but like, we're we're getting a Beavis and Butthead reboot, and we're getting a King of the Hill reboot. Like, yeah. <laughs> And of course, it's in, it's in horror too. It's everywhere. Like, but like, right. come on. <laughs> yeah, we we say this as we're like, oh, we're so excited to drop our new episode on screen. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> like, but but that's just where we are, right? And I, maybe it's because we're in times of turmoil right now as as a I was gonna say as a nation, but as a world. So yeah, we're all just um, looking back at our faves. Yeah. So okay, question for you two the end of this film so we get presumably it's either a year later or some years later on halloween we see Corey. he i think we're cued by the city skyline that he's in new york he has this dropped call with romany but also this giant blown up picture of jonah's face and also the mask and mm-hmm. i don't love this i sort of understand what it's doing but i also it's a weird level of ambiguity that i don't know that i needed when the impact was so much stronger what what's what's ambiguous to you about this well i mean aaron made a joke earlier that it's like oh Corey moves to new york and then it's basically like he realizes he likes boys better i think the fact that the call with romney drops and he doesn't try to get her back he's just like cool bye i'm like so are we a couple or are we not? Uh, <laughs> the fact that he has a giant picture of his dead gay friend on the wall. I was going to say, it's funny that y'all are talking about, oh, like how the movie's talking about, oh, like don't hide behind nostalgia. But not only does he have that picture, but then he also puts on Jonah's costume. Mm-hmm. And starts, and I'm assuming, because I do believe this is a year later, because I do not believe him and Romani would make it beyond like two years. Um, <laughs> but- I have no faith in their relationship. <laughs> But he, I also take this to mean that now every Halloween, that's what he's going to be doing. He's going to be going out paying tribute to the friend that he, he didn't save. I mean, in some ways, it is it is that tribute, right? And that's nice because that means that that empathy he developed over the course of this one night in 97 is going to stick with him. He's a better person for it. I just – it feels pat in a film that excelled at not giving us straightforward answers and reassuring us. Like I didn't need this for Corey because I think the film is more interesting when we're left with, Oh shit, what have I done? How do I live now? Well, I guess that depends on how you want, how you want Corey to end the film, right? Do you want him to end in despair? Do you want him to, do you want to see him at least moving past this? And I do get what you're saying because Mm -hmm. yeah, this does feel like a little tacked on code to be like, y'all look, he's fine. Seriously. Yeah. Like tonally, it doesn't quite fit with, I think what the rest of the film is. It's a queer text that's giving me too much optimism. (laughs) I think for me, it's a question as to not so much like, yes, I have the same issues with the coder as you both do, but did he is he in New York City because he has grown or is he mm-hmm. in New York City because he just never stopped running you know there's a, there's a quote earlier right. on when he's being chased through the school the werewolves where it's like if you if you don't have the taste of blood there's only one thing to do which is just to to run and to keep running and i wish that there was a little bit more ambiguity around that in terms of this coda as opposed to it being a little bit pat which it is 
But like, I guess it depends on did he is he there because he never was able to deal with his grief and therefore is kind of defined by his guilt, which would fit in mm-hmm. terms of why he he goes through this Halloween ritual, regardless of what country he's in, where he honors his friend but really just acknowledges the fact that he's a terrible person, or <laughs> or is it or is he there because he's grown into a new version of himself in which he honors his friend's memory, which I actually like less as an idea um because that feels a bit cutesy but hey look you know i still think he's i still think he's uh, uh, the journey's not over for for our Corey. (laughs) if he's in new york it's definitely not over because he has probably been to a couple gay bars by now one can hope yeah one can hope you know bless (laughs) i mean would we have liked this story better if it had been him putting on the costume paying tribute to jonah but the final image is him going into like a gay bar or going down to join like some kind of mardi gras celebration sort of deal no because it's gonna make it too explicit and the film is very adamant about making this not explicitly queer that is true verso was actually on the record as saying he prefers not to have people even view his films as explicitly queer which i think is i don't know i have a love-hate relationship with artists who don't want to acknowledge like yes i'm making a work of queerness that's but again when you take into account that his character of jonah was explicitly queer at Mm -hmm. one point so if he's gonna say that why then would he even have a draft of the screenplay in which his character was explicitly out and proud queer you know i mean aaron you might be able to speak to this better because you are a creator who makes original works unlike trace and i who spend a lot of our time talking about other people's works but not to belittle us trace but um it's fine i guess i we don't always talk about realistic things like marketability and trying to appeal to a wider audience so i when i hear these stories i'm like oh is it because you don't want to scare off straight people that can give you money so you can make more movies that is 100 percent what i was thinking as well okay I can't. I, I probably can't speak too much to the marketability of it because it's something that I've had to just accept that I I just uh, moth to the flame will come back to trying to tell a story that resonates with me. So my works have mm-hmm. become increasingly queer. I think I, I, what I can speak to is how difficult it is to discuss creatively as a creator to go there to be an adult and exploring queer awakening in children and how uncomfortable that can be for a creator for 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 the creator themselves i think that with like so i had a recent release called dirty heads which is literally about this it would have been very very easy for me to code the queerness and and tell it Mm -hmm. tell it straight but i just could not do that but the decision it took for me to the leap it took for me to kind of go down that path was actually really difficult to do because i don't want anyone i if even if i kept it coded i wouldn't want somebody to read it and see nothing but queerness and for me to say i would mm-hmm. rather you not uh, that that I, w- I would rather you take you know uh, or, uh, sexual orientation out of it completely i wouldn't want that so in terms of uh, verso's comment i too struggle with that because for me it 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 just i'm like either go there or don't go there. But whatever you do, don't take it away from us. 
You know what I mean? Because we, we are geared towards looking for it. And this kind of loops back to what we were saying in the very, very beginning, that it doesn't matter if it's there or not. If we see it, it's there and it's real. <laughs> um, always. Always. Uh, always. We're preaching to the choir with that. <laughs> yeah, it's always there. But it takes an, a, an element of bravery, and, and I just want Verso to own it, you know, because I think what he's doing is really, really great. But I think that don't bail out now because it's connecting with people. If anything, leading right. to it. You know what I mean? Um, but it's impossible for, for a creator to say that to a creator because who knows what's going on there. There might be stuff in this exactly. film that I may have missed. But it, ta- it takes a lot to discuss childhood sexuality regardless of, of whether it's whatever the, the, the orientation may be. It takes a lot to do it correctly. And it takes um, – mm-hmm. you do have to do a little bit of a leap of faith, which is why it's nostalgia pieces often that do it, and which is also, in a right. YA context, why you often get the construct of somebody looking back into the past, which is also why yeah. when you're writing prose, for example, so many of these stories will be first person, not third person, because you don't want to appear to be right. observing somebody going through their sexual awakening at that age. It's much more mm. easier to swallow to if you are – you write first person and are experiencing it with them as opposed to observing it. These are all considerations that I think people and creators do need to be mindful of in not so much in terms of marketability, but in terms of not being told that you shouldn't be writing, say, for example, to draw like a parallel to it, say a gangbang sequence in a sewer. You know what I mean? Uh, Top of the third person. You know what I mean? Um, Like I understand Mm -hmm. on the metaphorical level completely why that happens at that point. But because it's told almost from an omnipresent observational, almost godlike perspective. It's creepy. It's really uncomfortable to read. So these are considerations that I think that certainly I as a creator think of in regards to talking about childhood sexuality. Verso, I'm not too sure. I, I would love to talk to him about it because I'm fascinated by it. Um, but it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. As soon as you create it and let it go, it's never yep. your film again. <laughs> it's never your book again. And, and we will read into it <laughs> as far as we possibly can because that to us was a form of survival and. It's going to be yeah, whether we yes. want to it or not. I'm so glad you said that too. Because how many times have we said that, Joe? Like oh once it leaves the creator. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We we often get accused of reaching, Aaron. But I will say this conversation has gone to so many places. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I was very excited to get to sit down to talk about it with the two of you because I think there's so much richness in this film. But yeah, this this honestly went way beyond my expectations of where we were going to take it and what we would tackle. So thank you both. I'm glad because I really wanted this to be good for you. <laughs> <laughs> I've waited two years for this. Was it good for you too, honey? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes, it was so good. Uh, uh, what? <clears throat> okay. So that is Boys in the Trees. Do we have any final thoughts or do we think we've gotten it all out? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's been a lot. I think to try to even synthesize would be maybe a fool's errand. <laughs> okay. This is a very rich film and you can tell because it. The discussion was, oh, do you know what? Get rid of that because that was about to be bumper stickery. <laughs> I liked it. We all like the film, everyone. If you if you haven't seen the film, please go seek it out. It is available. Like you can go rent it and whatnot. So go watch it. Mm-hmm. Before we tease what we are covering next week, Aaron, please. For, well, first of all, thank you so much for coming and bring because you brought so many insights that joe and i did not have mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I i really but, enjoyed it guys it was great but let everyone know where can they find you on social media 
Look, the best way to hit me up is through Twitter, at Aaron Dries, and I'm also, <laughs> I have started a TikTok, and I don't know if I'm okay. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and I would just like you all to tell me to stop. <laughs> uh, that is, but Wait. Twitter Twitter or through my website, AaronDries.com is the way to go. I, I love interacting with people, especially readers, and the, I live and breathe this stuff. Let's just chat about cool things. That's what I like to do. Amen to that. Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers and join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. And of course, go to our YouTube channel to, well, you can look at our Micro Queers coverage. You can look at our new Horror Queers hangouts where we uh, basically do a happy hour with uh, our peers once a month. Or um, we've also got some interviews on there. We have an interview with uh, The Ruins and Bug Crush director Carter Smith up there right now. So... That's a lot, a lot of video content coming y'all's way this year, y'all. Mm-hmm. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. Apple Podcasts and Spotify are the best places to do that. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. So go subscribe to get episodes on season one of Yellow Jackets, Death on the Nile, Netflix's new entry in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise, and of course, for our audio commentary, you can listen to Joe and I wax poetic about one of the best horror sequels ever made, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Yeah, very excited to revisit that one. Yeah, but Joe, Mm -hmm. what are we, well, how do you want to tease what we are covering next week? Because, um, oh boy. Yeah, so the only thing I'm going to say is that we're going to stick in the supernatural realm, but it's uh, a little bit gentler than this, like... This was kind of surreal, dreamy, hallucinatory. Next week is like a whole lot of what the fuckery. All right, everyone. We'll stay tuned next week for 2017's pick for underseen or underrated. But until then, we can cross out boys in the trees. Indeed. And cross out horror queers. Horror queers.